Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 20th, 2019, starting at exactly 5.08 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 331st episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologers Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic about the significations of the 12 houses. And this is planned to be part one in our series of the houses. So we're going to cover houses one through six today. And then in the next episode, we'll do uh, houses seven through 12. Uh, so, hey, how's it going, guys? Hi. Thank good. You. Thank you for joining me in the studio today. It's a different experience. It's very good. <laughs> yes. So uh, it's a little. A little tricky getting everything together. This is our first recording. You guys, Kelly, you flew out from Belgium and Austin, you flew in from Oregon. Mm -hmm. And we are recording our first episode uh, in person, not in ever. The in the studio. First, first time you guys have been in the studio. studio episode, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so this is exciting. And we're going to, we're not going to do an easy episode. We're going to tackle one that we've been meaning to do for a long time that's going to be kind of a lot of work. But it's going to be one of our more important episodes, and it's going to be good to have have it recorded here in person. We've been promising it for a while. Right. All right. So we're going to talk about the significations of the 12 houses today. Uh, we've planned this out surprisingly little in terms of like <laughs> actual planning for what we wanted to say. But I know each of us has taught the houses so many times that this is really something any of the three of us could do in our sleep at this point. And that's part of what we're shooting for is not a fully casual discussion, but a discussion between three practitioners that have been doing this for a couple of decades about what the meanings of the 12 houses are that's accessible, not just for beginners, but also with something for intermediate and advanced students as well. Yeah, it's such an important topic. And I think the more that you know about the houses, the better your astrology is overall. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, we've all been teaching on this material for a while and adding to our own understanding of it. So it's going to be good to pop it out there and complete, I guess, those three foundational subjects because we've done planets and signs already, I think. That we have. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a very popular, that's actually my most popular YouTube video right now. I just looked it up last night oh. and part two of our, our, our signs of the Zodiac series has like 60 or 70,000 views. So wow. uh, yeah, so we're going to be, this is like a continuation of that series with We've done the planets. That was actually the first one we did yeah. was the significations of the seven traditional planets mm -hmm. like two or three years ago. Then we did the signs of the zodiac. And now uh, the next major part of the system is the 12 houses. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So preliminary stuff to get out of the way. There's conceptual stuff that we should we could touch on, but there's also practical things like house division. Um, I did a episode, I guess it was last month, on how the different forms of house division came about. But for the most part, the basic central premise of that was that whole sign houses seems to have been the most popular system of house division originally. But then the Hellenistic astrologers were also using equal houses and quadrant houses as a secondary overlay in order to judge when planets were more active or more prominent in a chart. Uh, but in terms of house division, I primarily use whole sign houses. Is that what you guys use primarily at this point as well? Yeah, I do. You, yeah, I use whole sign houses um, with um, the the position of the midheaven and the IC taken into consideration. Yes, yeah. the midheaven is so important. So yeah, that coming into a huge, coming into it in a huge way. Uh, but in terms of topics. I mean, that's the core thing, I think, is knowing the right topics to associate with the house. Right. E even if you might be using a different house system. 
Yeah. Well, and the even though there are a couple different uh, systems for dividing the circle, the rationale behind houses is very similar for all of them. Like there's there are cadent houses and mm-hmm. angular houses in every house system. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I also use the Indian whole sign system. And again, the it, it's a whole sign 12 house system. 12 house system. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I just, uh, you were saying earlier, it's important. I would say that there's no real astrology without houses. Mm-hmm. Um, you can yeah. look at the nature of influences or the, you know, the nature of configurations with planets and signs. But if you don't know where to look for them in the life, then it's very difficult to do astrology. Yeah. Um, you know, houses tell us like, so I don't know, let's say we have some wonderful like moon Jupiter conjunction in cancer, right? Yeah. Well, is that in a person's 11th house, like Kurt Cobain? And so they have an amazingly devoted, loving audience. Mm-hmm. Is it in a person's first house? Right. So they're just like this giant ball of, of... cuddly wisdom. <laughs> right. right. Or is it, you know, is it in their fourth? Was it their mom? Yeah. That had that, family. you know, that, that brought that? Like, yeah. And so, locate, you know, knowing the difference between is this configuration someone's mom? Is mm. it their audience? Is it their job? Is it them? Is it it's, financial? Is it health? Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. It's hugely yeah. practical. Yeah. Right. So that's one of the things is that um, houses show topics or areas of life as well as other people in the person's life in general. Yes. That's one of the primary like roles or purposes from a technical standpoint of the 12 houses. Yeah. Where, where, where in the life does it land? And I think houses do a really good job of underscoring that the chart is about the unit, the essential, the fundamental unit of analysis in a chart is a life. Yes. Right. It's not just the part of the life that you identify with. Yes. There are houses for that. There yes. are also parts of there are also houses for that seems like not me at all. Yeah. Right. That's in my life, but it's not me personally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the the houses give you such a holistic overview and it's so wonderful really that you can describe another person in your life. This is what your parent was like, or this is what your relationship with siblings is like, or relationship with boss or coworkers. And and all of that comes from knowing where to find those people or those parts of your life via the birth chart, by the houses. Absolutely. Okay. So houses show uh, topics or areas of a person's life is one of the things that they do. Yeah. Um, they can also show other things that the houses do is they can show whether a planet is functioning well or if a planet is functioning poorly, or in other words, another way of framing that might be if uh, in some traditions they frame it as a planet is, let's say, auspiciously placed in the person's chart versus uh, an inauspicious or a less auspicious placement in Mm. terms of the ability of the planet to function in the person's life and produce the significations that it wants to produce versus being in some houses where it has a little bit more Difficulty producing things in a way that is um, just obviously favorable or or good for the native themselves. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that reminds me of what I think is one of the most important things to learn about houses when you're coming from the signs to the houses. Mm-hmm. Is that the signs? There's no the signs are not they're not good and bad signs. Where whereas there are yes. inherently more powerful and more favorable houses. And inherently, Less. way way rougher. Yes, houses. You know, it's uh, I don't know. It's like a it's like a city. Like 
some real estate is worth 10 times Mm -hmm. what real estate 10 miles over is like. That is such a good point that you made there, Austin, that there are no good or bad signs. Like every sign has positive and negative qualities to it, but inherently none of them are kind of challenging or difficult. But there are at least two and, you know, certain authors would argue three or four houses that are problematic. And so it's good to understand those distinctions. Yeah, and that's, that's what Chris was saying. Like if uh, if a planet is in one of the best pieces of real estate in the chart, um, that planet, regardless of whether it's happy in its sign or not, has a lot of power and a lot of Huge influence. Huge amount of power. And then there yeah. are some there are some houses where even if the planet is in its exaltation and it's got trines from friendly from planets, it's ones. very supported, it's still going to have kind of a rough go of it. Still stuck. And so I guess the houses then are also a way of qualifying the acting power, if you like, of a planet, you know, in terms of assessing its condition or its ability to do its thing. Right. It's uh, probably the most single important factor in assessing accidental dignity. Yeah. So just to summarize that briefly, generally speaking, the traditional doctrine on this is that the houses that aspect the rising sign through a major aspect are the ones that tend to be more positive or Mm -hmm. more easier, whereas the houses that do not aspect the rising sign are the ones that tend to be a little bit more challenging or have outcomes that tend to be um, a little bit more difficult in terms of the planet's ability to manifest some of its more positive significations. So The breakdown is usually that the 6th, 8th, and 12th tend to be the so-called bad houses or the negative houses mm. or the challenging houses and the other houses in varying degrees. sort of order degrees of like positivity tend to be the more favorable houses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. Other conceptual structures built into the houses are the concept of angularity mm-hmm. and the idea of the, the so-called angular triads. So the the foundation of that, of course, is the four angular houses, which are the first house, the fourth house, the seventh house, and the tenth house. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's a favorite, there's, everything is ranked and graded, right? There are a lot of ranking grading systems. There are a lot of ranking grading well, systems, but most people would say, well, I think all systems say the first house is the most potent. No, well, so you get, um, you get disagreement, I would say pretty even on both sides, between which is best, first or tenth. Right. It's always first and tenth. First and tenth, the, the top two. In the number one and two yeah. slots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, let's just, I'd like to pause for a second on the four angular houses. Because okay. one, they are, angular houses are more powerful mm. and speak yes. to um, part of the way I teach it is the four angular houses um, are what you use to answer the four basic questions you would have about a person's life. Mm-hmm. First house, I don't know, what are they like? Seventh house, who are they with? Yeah. Fourth house, where are they from? Tenth house, what do they do? Yeah. And so, and then those four anchor a triad each, which is what you were leading to. I just wanted to get that in there. Yeah. Right. That the four houses, that the four angles um, anchor all of the rest of the significations of the houses. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the breakdown like I usually do for that is, uh, let me see if I can throw up a diagram actually of just a, this is a poster actually we're releasing this year on the significations of the houses, which largely follows traditional significations, although it has a few more modern significations, I think. But usually the breakdown I do is like first house is the self. It's where you find the the, the native or the person mm-hmm. whose birth chart it is. The seventh house represents the other in their life, which can represent partnerships. The fourth house represent or the tenth house represents their public life. Whereas the fourth house represents their private life. Mm. 
And this is actually partially tied into a cycle that was connected and used to some extent in the Egyptian tradition that I think mm. you mentioned to me last night, Kelly, mm-hmm. which was the diurnal rotation and its the connection with cycle. the angles. Yeah. Yeah, they had this beautiful philosophy, you know, of course, things coming up, you know, on the eastern horizon is is life and and birth and beginnings. And then when a planet's more well, when the sun reaches that sort of tenth house position, and we mark that as the midheaven and they can often be different. But yeah, that's the height of the the sun's brightness. So that think about tenth house is like most visible, our highest profile part of the chart. And then the West, of course, is the setting, which they did associate actually with things like death and and dying. And it's interesting how we have relationships in there today, which we could explore from a philosophical perspective. But that's obviously like the setting point. And then the fourth house, you know, when students are struggling to understand that, think about it as the midnight position. You know, you're at home, you're with your family, you're in the more private, intimate parts of your life. The stuff that you probably, I was going to say you wouldn't share with others, but maybe in the world of Instagram, you you do share some of it, but you still probably don't share all of it. Right. And when a planet is in the fourth relative to your, to where you are, you would look down to find it. Yeah. So you're either, it's either, it's either supporting you or dragging you down, but it's acting from, from below you. From that subterranean underneath. The subterranean pivot. Yes, the subterranean pivot to use technical terms. It's my new uh, metal band. Love it. So that's a really good point. So just in order to frame the astronomy of the houses and the four angles, the uh, first house and the ascendant is roughly uh, located and associated with the eastern horizon, which is where the sun rises in the morning each day. Yeah. And then the 10th house is associated with roughly that which is immediately overhead in the middle of the sky mm-hmm. when the sun is roughly at noon, let's just say approximately, or in the middle of the day. Yeah, the height of the day. Yeah. Right. And then the 7th house and the descendant is associated with where the sun sets in the west each day. Mm-hmm. And then the IC and the 4th house are associated with where the sun is at midnight. Yeah, the darkest kind of point of night. Right. Yeah. So that's that's one there's cuz there's two motions mm. and this often confuses people when yes. they start learning the houses and that's called the diurnal rotation which is the sun rising in the east and then culminating overhead and then setting in the west and then hitting the anti-culmination or the IC or the subterraneous point mm-hmm. around midnight but all of the planets follow a similar motion uh, at different rates it's not just the sun that does mm. that but all of the planets will rise and culminate and set and anti-culminate at different points during the course of a day. Mm-hmm. So that motion though is roughly, if you looked at it as a chart, like let's pull up a chart really quickly, is roughly um, like clockwise basically, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. Whereas all the planets Actually, in their courses move counterclockwise. Yeah. So let me back it up. Let's use today as an example and I'll back it up to sunrise. So this is using whole sign houses. But the sun is currently in Scorpio. So that means this morning, when the sun reached the ascendant, it rose over the eastern horizon. So here we have Scorpio, the ascendant's in Scorpio. So Scorpio is the quote unquote rising sign. And using whole sign houses, at least, uh, Scorpio is the first house. So the sun will then, if you just sort of like animate the chart, the sun will eventually rise over the horizon, over the ascendant. And that's sunrise, basically. Mm. And then eventually the sun keeps moving and and starts moving upwards over the course of the next several hours as it moves through the houses until eventually 
it hits the top part of the chart and hits the midheaven, and that's around the time, let's say roughly, it's hitting the 10th house. Uh, and there's a little bit of ambiguity here, of course. There's a little bit of problem as we're discussing this, of course, because we are sort of alternating back and forth between discussing it within the context of like whole sign houses versus quadrant houses and needing to sort of blend those two vantage points, which is a little tricky, right? Yeah, I think it's the difference between the MC and the 10th house that the MC- The 10th sign. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the 10th sign, if you like, around from the ascendant. The midheaven itself will mark the degree of that sun's culmination, but it may not sit in the 10th sign or the 10th whole sign house. Right. Um, even though both the 10th house and the midheaven will have a couple of crossover significations, even sure. if they're not in the same sign. Right. Yeah. And okay. that's something people get very confused with when they first come to whole sign houses. Yeah. And that's going to be tricky. And I'm, we're going to try to balance both as we're doing this, but just keep in mind that difference. And yeah, that they are two things. And definitely check out that previous episode on um, the origins of the different forms of house division, where I have a more detailed breakdown yes, between the different that. approaches. Yeah. All right. So back to that. Um, so middle of the day, the sun hits the 10th house, 10th whole sign house, let's say, or hits the midheaven. And that's when it's roughly in the 10th sign or 10th house. Then it keeps going, and eventually the sun hits the descendant in the seventh whole sign house later around sunset. And as soon as the sun hits the descendant, the sun moves underneath the horizon and sinks underneath the horizon. And actually, in ancient Hellenistic astrology, they called the seventh house the setting place mm. or the sinking place because that's literally where the sun sets or sinks underneath the horizon each day as opposed to the rising sign, which is where the sun rises over the horizon each day. Yeah, and the ancient Egyptians had the whole philosophy about the planets sinking over the horizon, going into the underworld and kind of being in the underworld space. And then when they see them rise, so the 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 sun coming off over the ascendant every morning had that magical like sort of quality of of rebirth or the light. It's maybe stronger than we might think today because light is viewed differently. Sure. Well, and to be clear, even though the sun is by far the most visible thing that rises and sets, you can watch every visible planet yeah. rise in the east and set in the, um, west. In the west. Yeah, yeah. As, as long as, it, if, especially if it's like nighttime. Like for example, in this chart, we can see um, about an hour or so after sunset where the sun is in the sixth house in Scorpio, uh, we see the descent is at 19 degrees of Sagittarius and Venus and Jupiter are right there at 23 and 27 Sagittarius. And they're just getting ready to set and move underneath the descendant, which means if you went outside and looked west, you would see these two bright white twinkling stars mm. uh, set under the horizon over the course of like a, I don't know, a half hour or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're there and then they're not. Yeah. Okay. So the sun sets at the seventh house and the descendant, and then eventually it moves into the sixth house and then the fifth house. And then eventually, once it hits the fourth house in the IC, we have the sort of halfway through the night or the midnight part of the day as it's going through the fourth house. And then eventually the sun moves to the third, then the second, and then it hits the first house and it rises again the next morning. And that's one complete sort of diurnal rotation mm. of the sun. But you can see that as we're animating this chart, it's not just the sun that are, is moving and rising and culminating and setting and anti-culminating, but also the other planets do the same thing. And that's the fundamental basis of the houses. The houses start with those four angular houses because those are the four sectors of the chart that have a very clear astronomical basis in being based on either rising over the eastern horizon, culminating up overhead during midday, 
setting in the evening or hitting the anti-culmination or the midnight point halfway through the, the night. Mm. And it's worth noting that uh, for people who are newer to houses, every planet spends time in all 12 houses every day. Every day. Right. It's not like signs. No, that's that's very good. And that's to do with the Earth's rotation. Right. Yeah. So um, all of that being said, so in terms of the diurnal rotation where we have that movement where if you put it on a chart, it looks like a, a clockwise movement. Yeah. Um, there's also a secondary movement, and that's actually the movement, which is the movement of the planets through the signs of the zodiac. Mm -hmm. And when you put that in a chart, that movement goes counterclockwise, and that's actually the order in which we sort of number the houses one through 12. Yeah. So right. sometimes that trips people up. Right. Because throughout the day, the sun does 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Whereas if, uh, if you watch the sun move through your chart, uh, yeah, throughout so throughout a year, year yeah. right? It's going to do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, etc. Right. Mm. So back to our sort of diagram. This is the twelve houses, and yeah. So it starts out where in the eastern horizon, the sec the sector associated with the ascendant is associated with the first house, and then if you go downwards, the next house after that is the second house. Then the third house, then the fourth house is the um, the IC or the subterranean point, the the midheaven or, or midnight point. Mm -hmm. The fifth house comes after that. Then the sixth house, the seventh house is associated with the setting or the descendant. Then the eighth house, ninth house, tenth house associated with the midheaven or the culmination. Eleventh house, and then finally the twelfth house is the last of the twelve houses. So that's the basic sort of structure. That everybody encounters when they first start learning astrology in terms of the 12 houses. And the next step is the next question then immediately becomes what do those 12 houses mean? What do yeah. those 12 segments or sectors of the chart actually mean uh, when you're interpreting them, especially in a person's birth chart, or when, especially when you're looking at planets placed in each of the 12 houses, what, what do those mean? Yeah, and I think there's a couple of distinctions to make too. I mean, the houses basically create the framework or the structure of every astrological birth chart. So once you have an understanding of the topics of the houses, then you can apply that to all charts. Now, how you interpret the topics and the meaning of each topic is different from chart to chart based on the planets and the signs associated with each house. Mm -hmm. But it's good to understand that that framework of those 12 houses, that particular order it is in every single birth chart. It's consistent, basically. Right. So one of the sectors, for example, that we'll talk a lot about in part two is the 10th house representing career. Mm -hmm. But depending on what planets you have in your 10th house or associated with the 10th house or other things like that, different people are going to have different predispositions towards different types of careers based on those placements. Totally. Yeah. So you look, you look if you want to answer the question about career, one of the places you go is the 10th house. Uh, but how you answer that in terms of go in this direction or that direction is different for every chart. And that's where the magic of astrology comes in. Right. Yeah. Uh, in terms of other preliminary conceptual structures that we need to touch on, I think there's two that we need to address. One of them is the modern conceptualization of signs equals houses. And the second conceptualization is the older uh, idea of the planetary joys as being one mm. of the ways that significations are derived from the houses. Maybe which one should we touch on first? Like I'm trying to decide which it would be easier to start with. Should we start with 
kind of dismissing the signs equals houses thing and explaining why, even though people at this point, why they may immediately encounter that, why it might not be the, the most useful thing to use, or should we focus instead on the joys? I think my feeling is to start with the first option of sort of the house sign thing, because once we get into the joys, we can then probably segue into the topics okay. a little bit from there, unless you guys have a different preference. I'm fine with that. Okay. So um, starting point for that is, as I said, the, tw- the 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 starting point for the houses is the four angles, mm-hmm. the four angular houses, one, four, seven, and ten. And those um, are the basis of the houses because they have like immediate astronomical properties that the fact that the sun and the other planets rise over the horizon in the first house, or that they set and sink under the earth mm-hmm. in the seventh house, or that the in the tenth house, the planets are at their highest and most visible part of the chart. So they're the most evident. And then therefore astrologers draw symbolic interpretations for that and say, well, this is where the native will be the most eminent in their life, mm. uh, or this is where the native's reputation will be seen or their public life will be seen through the 10th house because symbolically that's where the planets are at their most visible. And then conversely, at the fourth house, the planets are at their most hidden because that's the midnight position. And therefore, the fourth house is said to represent the native's private life and their home life and family and things like that, things that are private and therefore opposite to the tenth house significations of your reputation and your public visibility and your career. So right there, we can see part of the basic significations of the houses coming from just the astronomical properties of where are these houses located um, relative to the perspective of the observer and what might that mean symbolically. And that's one method in which I think the significations of the houses were originally developed. Yeah. So over the centuries, astrologers have come up with different rationales, though, for assigning significations to different houses. Mm-hmm. One of the more recent ones that's becoming extremely popular in modern times, although it's a relatively recent invention, is to associate the first house because it's the first of the 12 houses with what is thought to be the first sign of the zodiac, which is Aries, and then to associate the second sign of the zodiac, which is Taurus, with the second house, second of the 12 houses, which is the second house, and so on and so forth. So Gemini to the third house and Cancer to the fourth and and so on and so forth. So this is a very widespread and pervasive conceptual structure that's been adopted in the past few decades in modern astrology. But one of the surprising things that's happened during the traditional movement over the course of the past 20 or 30 years once astrologers went back and started translating ancient texts is that we actually discovered that that conceptual model doesn't seem to have been used hardly at all and and doesn't even seem to have been a concept uh, until relatively recently in the the long history of astrology like maybe the last 100 years well, is, it's it, like, is it an Alan Leo thing or is it a little bit later? What happens is that you can see traces of it, like Lily mentions it sort of in passing, but he doesn't really seem to use it no, he doesn't. way back in like the you know, 16th, 17th, 17th century. 17th century, yeah. But then when it gets to modern times, you have those early 20, late 19th and early 20th century astrologers like William, like Alan Leo, mm. drawing on earlier texts like Lily, where they saw that and they assumed that that was a core conceptual structure for the houses. So they just started running with it. Mm. And then it accelerates really fast. Because if you look at Alan Leo, he's still not using it as much as he could. But then when you get the generation of astrologers that came in in the 1960s and 70s, 
and 80s, they really went to town with it and it became their primary conceptual structure for understanding what the significations of the houses are and it sort of super started to supersede almost all other approaches to understanding the houses. So it's relatively recent in the past few decades basically. Doesn't work very well. Yeah, I was going to say my astrology got so much better when I stopped doing it that way. Yeah, so, I remember when I stopped doing it, the houses actually started working. They did. I was like, oh my God, you mean the fourth house can actually tell me about someone's family and origins? Yes, not because, just cancer stuff. Yeah. yeah um, it's, it's an oversimplification. It is. I, I would go so far as to say it's a gross oversimplification. Yeah, it's an oversimplification to the point that you're going to make <sighs> – you're going to make huge errors yes. if you're using that. as, And by errors, I mean inaccurate delineations Yes, where you sit down with a person, you say, okay, I'm going to delineate your family based on this idea versus taking the fourth house as, as the fourth house um, rather than a mirror image of a sign. Yeah. Um, like you will make, um, how should we say, uh, catalogable mistakes if that is your approach. Or at least that was what I saw. Yeah. Um, and then switching out of that and understanding angularity, understanding, you know, a succeeding house, cadent houses, understanding the houses on their own terms mm. right. gives you the results that you're supposed to get from houses. I kind of yes. like didn't fully believe that houses work yeah. before I learned to get away from that 12-letter alphabet thing because they didn't do what I was told what that they, they would do. What they should do. And, yeah. you know, and that also connects back to if you're thinking of them as signs, then everyone is equally viable. Mm -hmm. You know, the 12 signs are 12 different patternings. Yes. Right? One is not better yeah. than another. One is more Saturnian. One is yeah. more solar. One is more planning. One is more fast. I mean, the, whereas, the, yeah. The houses are the houses are unequal. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but we all did start there. We did. So, we, we all, did started all started with, there. with modern astrology, and that was so ingrained that if you read most intro books, it's just taken for granted. And so, yes. we, we started there, but then once we, started learning about older forms of astrology, we saw that not only was that conceptual model not there, but that the houses had their own independent meanings that were based on other conceptual structures that actually seemed to be more important and more foundational for understanding the houses on their own terms. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. absolutely. And I, it's worth noting that there's also a market motive for the 12 signs equal 12 planets. Yes. Because you can present um, instead of, so with signs and houses, if there are two sets of 12, you have 144 overlaps. Yes. Whereas if they're the same thing, then you only have to describe 12 things. 12. Right. So, so from a publishing one, and a printing perspective, it's 1 12th the complexity. Yeah. Right, and so you can kind of it's easier to sell to a mass market. You can present as if you're covering a lot more ground. Yeah. Well, and also it's just easier because I think one of the issues, especially that newer students run into, but even more experienced astrologers, is that sometimes they'll know a few significations of the houses, but then they'll struggle to come up with what are the other meanings, and they'll reach to the signs, the sign. and they'll say, "Well, the twelfth house in indicates this, this, and this," but then they'll sort of start grasping for other meanings, and they'll reach to, "Well, Pisces is the twelfth sign, so the twelfth house must also mean this." That's a and good point. Um, when you do signs equal houses, it not only gives you 
a below mediocre understanding of houses, it also corrupts the signs. It does corrupt the signs. Because yeah. Sagittarius is not always about long distance travel. Correct. Right. If you have Sagittarius in the second, it has nothing to do, <laughs> do with <laughs> has... travel and everything to do with your financial strategy. Right. Yeah, which um, may have its own problems or gifts depending on. So you and as a son in Pisces, um, <laughs> having the son in Pi having Pisces always described in twelfth house terms, not useful and no, not accurate, not helpful. So part of your objection is, or part of what you're bringing up is that it's not just that contemporary astrologers in the late twentieth century started taking sort of stealing significations from the signs and importing them into the houses, but also some of the significations of the houses started being. Imported over into the signs. Yeah. Yeah. So it blurred the Became distinction this, like, between semi the two. membrane thing. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. Which makes both not work. It makes both diluted, essentially. Okay. Yeah. It's like a what's the worst sandwich you can imagine? <laughs> uh, I mean, peanut butter and jelly mixed I'm, with I like. I think that's gross. Yeah. Mixed, no, that's wonderful. Well, that's, <laughs> well, there's, there's, personal. there's a complementarity there between the sweet and the salty. Um, Austin's my, deeply are, offended right now. He's my, deeply offended. One of my brother's favorite, like, terrible combinations was um, salted peanuts and chewing gum. Oh, disgusting! Yeah, right? that so is imagine, horrible. So that's kind of like yeah. chewing. I like chewing gum and I like salted nuts, <laughs> but <laughs> um, when you put them together, like that's basically what signs equal houses is: is like nut studded chewing gum. <laughs> Are like, you, where are you going with this analogy? <laughs> this is are you talking about the brother there. who's going to be editing this episode? Yeah. Okay. Who Phil, we love and adore. Thank right. you very I, much for I, all I mean, your I, hard work. I appreciate him very much. Oh, so. he didn't. He didn't eat that. He just went through a phase where he was trying to come up with the worst combinations oh, of things. Okay. okay. It wasn't something he actually liked. No, no, no. Okay. no. It was. It was a creative project for him. Okay, I love it. Well, I mean, feel free, Stephen, to put a like a mustache on Austin at this point if you want to. Yeah. Just in the video oh, I don't think he'll be offended. Episode. It was okay. one of his classics. There were some it. other ones that were really good too, but I don't remember. There was Vidalia Dijon Tic Tacs was another. Um, Okay. Another thing that would never exist. Oh my goodness. I think yeah, we're that... getting slightly off track. I mean, here. I was gonna make a point here on the houses, <laughs> if that's okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is that when you learn when you attempt to learn the topics of the twelve houses in a way that is not borrowing from the zodiac signs, it is harder. I will say it right there. Right. And when I teach students you have to learn, you know, almost every beginner student, even if they have studied modern that has come into my program, they're stuck. They need to learn what is the eighth house really about if I'm not just going to use all the Scorpio words. Well, what is the twelfth so, house really about? And I know we're going to talk about these in our part well, two just episode. one one thing I, I would I've learned from from teaching. Yeah, is the people who come in with nuts and gum already like coated in. It's very difficult to pull all the crunched peanuts out of right. the gum. It's very for, hard to get gum off anything. For people who come in who don't have that, they pick up houses super fast. That's it's, true. It's really not very hard. That's and, true. Because you, you have to unlearn what you initially learned in order to rebuild your understanding of the houses. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, yeah that's, and that's unfortunately a process we all had to go through. Totally, yep. absolutely. And you had to backtrack and then your brain's working twice as hard. But in the end, it's worth it because See, I you never, understand. I just never really, I was always skeptical about houses because when you use, when you, when I did it that way, it just didn't work like it was supposed to. I was like, yeah. mm, not so sure about not this. Not into these. And then my my skepticism was validated. When I was like, oh, that's not the way you're supposed to do it at all. Right. Now it works. Now it works. So yeah. we probably convinced people to at least maybe try. Well, no, maybe not convinced, but to put an invitation out there to try the non-ABC approach of yeah. house meanings. And that's to 
as much as we can, what we're going to be following here as we get into the significations of the houses eventually is trying to just build it up from scratch based on the astronomical sort of meaning and location of the houses as it relates to things like angularity versus houses that are uh, cadent or succeedant, mm -hmm. which is something we haven't quite talked about yet, as well as uh, another conceptual structure, which appears to have been the original or one of the original conceptual structures for understanding the houses, which is a set of assignments for each of the seven traditional planets to one of the 12 houses, which is known as the planetary joys scheme. Yeah. Um, and really quickly, that scheme. Uh, we have a diagram. Let me put it. It's up. on your diagram, isn't it? Yeah. And I think if you, even if you don't have a full conceptual understanding of the joys, at least if you memorize which planet has its joy in which house, you're, you're probably better off drawing on from some of those planetary keywords to help fill out your house meanings mm -hmm. than fall back on the signs. Sure. So in this diagram, you can see. Um, each of the seven planets is seven traditional or visible planets is associated with one of the houses. So Mercury is assigned to the first house. The third house or the moon is assigned to the third house. And this is tied in with the traditional names of the houses in ancient mm. Greco-Roman astrology. So the third house was called the place of the goddess, and that was said to be the house associated with the moon. And that is opposite to the ninth house, which is associated with the sun, and it was said to be the place of God. The fifth house is called the place of good fortune, and that's associated with Venus, and that is opposite to the uh, house associated with Jupiter, which is the eleventh house, which is called the place of good spirit. Mm. Then we have the sixth house, which is called the place of bad fortune, which is associated with Mars, and it is opposite to the twelfth house, which is called the place of bad spirit, which is associated with Saturn. So this is actually the the sort of original conceptual structure for assigning planets to some of the twelve houses. And as you can see, it doesn't really have anything to do with that other more recent structure that's sometimes used of like the twelve-letter alphabet of Aries equals Mars equals first house, and mm. Taurus equals Venus equals second house, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So that's part of what we'll be following here, and as we go through it, we'll see that some of the significations of the houses are actually derived from that planetary joys scheme. But there's also other conceptual structures like the concept of angularity. We've already talked about the four angular houses, but we also have to also introduce the idea of the angular triads and the mm -hmm. idea that there are these four, these sequences of three houses that are grouped around the four angles and that repeat four different times. Uh, so, how do you guys want to introduce that? Just directly. Okay. Yeah. So, there's First, there's always a house that comes before where the the house, if a planet is there, it's falling away from or it's moving away from the angle. Mm. And these are known as the four cadent houses. And cadent means to fall away from something or mm. to decline from something. It's because the planets that are in those houses are declining away or moving away from the prominence of being in an angular house. So the four cadent houses are the third house. Which is falling falling away from the fourth house, the sixth house, which is falling away from the seventh house, the ninth house, which is falling away from the tenth house in the midheaven, and then the twelfth house, which is falling away from the first house in the ascendant. Mm. Then on the other side, we have the succeedant houses, which are houses that when planets are placed there, they're rising up towards the angles or they're moving up towards the angular houses. Where they will eventually succeed and sort of take over 
mm-hmm. uh, in terms of their the position of prominence that the angles occupy. And the four succeedant houses are the second house, where it's rising up towards the first house, the fifth house, which is rising up towards the fourth house, mm-hmm. the eighth house, which is rising up towards the seventh house, and the eleventh house, which is rising up towards the tenth house. So when you group those sets of three houses together, it's known as an angular triad. So for example, the angular triad associated with the ascendant is the 12th house, the first house, and the second house, and that forms a set or a sequence of three or an angular triad. Then you have the third house, the fourth house, and the fifth house. Then the next sequence is the sixth house, the seventh house, and the eighth house. And then finally, the final angular triad is the ninth house, the 10th house, and the 11th house. And those are the four sets of three, otherwise known as angular triads. All right. So those are some of the conceptual structures that we're going to be using. The last one that we've already mentioned briefly in passing is just that the houses that aspect the first house, the rising sign, tend to be more positive. So that's houses like three, four, five, seven, nine, ten, and eleven, mm-hmm. which form either a sextile, square, trine, or opposition with the first house. And therefore, since the first house is said to be the house associated with the native, any of the houses aspecting the first house are said to be supportive of the native in some way, whereas the houses that don't aspect the first house are said to potentially be not supportive or in some instances even destructive towards what the first house wants to signify. So this is the sixth house, the eighth house, and the twelfth house, and to a lesser extent, the second house. Yeah. From an aspect in the ascendant perspective, the second house is definitely in there. Sure. But I know that it gets treated a little differently. We were talking about that last night. Yeah. They don't talk as badly about the second house as they do about the other three. Right. Yeah. And so we'll get to that when, when we, we touch on the when we get to that. <laughs> second house. Yeah. So are there any other preliminaries that we need to touch on? Yeah. We concluding? should talk about the basic quality of cadence, succeed, and mm. angular houses. Yeah. Okay. All angular houses are powerful. Yeah. They make things happen. Um, so if you have a lot of planets in those houses or planet, yeah, planets that are in angular houses are very active. They're energetic. And they're obvious from usually pretty early on mm-hmm. in life. They, so yeah. it's I think about it as a checklist of like whatever planets are in angular houses you get early in life. And the succedent planet succedent house planets maybe a little bit later or with a bit more effort, and then Caton House planets, great effort or great delay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would say that angular positions in a, uh, planets that are angular, in addition to speaking to the specific area that that angular house covers, like fourth with family, yeah. Uh, angular posi- planets that are angular will also tend to have a more global effect on the chart because they're very powerful. That's beautiful. Um, I like su- that. Succeedant houses. Um, tend to have more to do with um, resources that a person can draw on, social, internal, financial, energetic, otherwise. Um, they're not wildly energetic. Uh, they they don't tend to have the same global impact no. as angular houses. Um, and then, <clears throat> but they are, you know, they're steady. Um, they're rising up to, they're moving towards an angle, which yeah. can be rising or sinking depending on where you are. Um, and then cadent houses... Caden houses are generally 
problem-solving houses. Mm -hmm. um, two of our least favorite houses, uh, two two of the traditions' least favorite houses. Yes, which are the sixth and the twelve. And everybody does agree on that. As okay, yeah, ev uh, six all and the authors, six and twelve are bottom, bottom two of the list on everybody's list for literally thousands of years. Yeah. For the most difficult houses, the yep. two most problematic. Yeah, and then, but even the. Um, even the the third and the ninth, the ninth being the most positive, you're still there's still a there's still a being drawn into figuring out problems. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll get into it um, during the next episode. But even the ninth, which is very favorable, it's figuring out philosophical problems. Yes, which is better than you know figuring out why your dishwasher is broken. <laughs> but it's still it's figuring still, it out. Yeah, and so planets that are in. Cadent houses tend to have a lot of their time taken up by just solving problems. Mm. And the result of this is that they have less energy um, to bring to bear on uh, on other parts of the chart. On whatever their actual significations or intentions right, like might doing, be. Yeah, doing their general thing. And that's yeah. um, in strong contradiction to the angular planets, which have a ton of energy to yeah. accomplish whatever it is. Yeah, that's a great description. Thanks. The energy different. The energy level difference is really important, I think, for people to understand with that angular succedent cadent. Yeah, and so, you know, again, the way that that mixes with signs is you might have a planet that isn't in a sign that's special for it, but it's in the first house, and so it's going to be very emphasized. Where you could have, yeah. you know, your special exalted thing, but it's off. You know, it's off there in the sixth, and you're like, why aren't why I amazing at all of these things? Yeah. yeah. And so, just energy levels is one fundamental thing Huge. to remember with houses. Yeah. Uh, another key word that I use for the angular houses is um, prominence. And this mm -hmm. is already kind of something you mentioned in passing, Kelly, but the idea that the angular houses and planets in angular houses are more prominent or the most prominent planets typically in a person's life mm -hmm. because astronomically those planets are at their most visible points um, where they're the, simply the most obvious, where mm -hmm. You know, planets in the first house or by the ascendant are, are literally rising up into into view mm. uh, and suddenly become visible for the first time after being under the horizon for uh, half of the day. Yeah. Uh, planets in the midheaven or the tenth house suddenly are at the um, highest and most visible part of the sky. Planets in the seventh house visibly disappear and sink out of sight, and then planets at the in the fourth house are at the midway point of of invisibility. Basically, they're most invisible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we think about the the fourth house is the sun at midnight, that's when night is the most obvious. Yeah. Right. It's like, oh, it's definitely night. Definitely. It's this not going to be morning for a while. Yeah. Hasn't been evening for a while. It's the it's the most visible point of invisibility for the yes, sun. The right. Most obvious. What's that phrase like the dark of night or the dead of night? Uh, yeah. Yes. Something like that. Yes. Okay. There is a phrase. So um, yeah. prominence, and then taking that on, just following the same analogy that you were doing, Austin. Like, so if planets in the fourth are at their most, in their, the angles are at their most prominent, succedent planets are rising up towards prominence, and they're not quite there yet, but they're on their way up, mm -hmm. um, headed towards the angles, and they will become prominent within the course of an hour or two mm. when they move into the angular positions, whereas succedent uh, or sorry cadent planets or planets in what used to be called declining houses are literally falling away from the angles and they're declining from prominence mm -hmm. so there's this idea of them receding or falling away in terms of not just their power but also their uh, visibility in some sense mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's it's the the energy, if you like, of like striving to get up something or to get somewhere. And that's the succedent planet is sort of the aspirational. We're not where we want to be, but we've got a sense of where we're going. The angular points or the angular places, you know, we're there, we're doing our thing, we're right in the thick of it. And then the cadent is a little bit of that depletion almost that comes after having done the thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you follow the when you follow the houses in the order that the planets move through them, which means in the order that all of your transits will work, one, two, yeah. three, four, five. Um, you always do cardinal succeeding cadent, cardinal succeeding cadent. Yeah. Um, and that that pattern repeats. Yeah. Yes. Right. In terms of like even transits, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Angular okay. first succeeding. Right. The cadent. Moon. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can see that. As with all other transits, and you can most watch that with the moon. With the oh yeah, just when you said the moon, I'm like, people can watch this if you want to understand the different energy levels in your own chart. Watch the moon moving around your chart. It's going to move through your houses every couple of days, mm-hmm. change houses, right? Yeah. And so that was all, and that's also the that secondary motion that I was talking about in terms yeah. of the movements of the planets by the transit when they move in that yeah that yeah. anti-clockwise motion. Yeah. Versus the diurnal motion, the daily motion, which is clockwise in a 24 hour period. Yeah. Yeah. And that confuses people in the beginning for sure. Yeah, and yeah. you'll and they'll get used to it. I mean, you'll, one of the easiest will figure it out. The easiest things you can do is just get like solar fire or some astrology program like that, and just animate the Where chart. You can see it moving and move it f- sort of in a twenty-four hour period. Just jump hour by hour, and then you'll see the planets moving around the chart like we were doing earlier. Mm. But then also sort of freeze the chart and change the increment, and then move it at a daily rate. And you'll see the planets moving through the signs of the zodiac in that motion, in the mm-hmm. the clockwise or counterclockwise motion. Anyway, all right. So, any other conceptual stuff that we should touch on before we move on and actually start getting into the significations of the twelve houses? I think we should move on, and yeah. stuff will come up. But I think that's a good overview for people to get started with that. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. All right, so let's start talking about the actual significations of the houses now that we've gotten most of the conceptual structure out of play out, out of the way basically, right? I think we've we've done a fair and pretty consistent uh, extensive job of that. I think that's plenty for people to chew on. Yeah. And if they want more, they've got all the right terms and phrases to now go looking for uh more info. Yeah, and if they want more, like each of us teaches courses or has books where we go into all of this in much more depth, but yeah. what we're trying to do here is a broad overview of the significations of the houses at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, let me throw up my diagram. And this is actually from the the poster that I did this year for the significations of the houses. That's part of the planetary alignments poster. And this just shows the significations of the first six houses, which was what we're going to cover now, starting with the first house. Mm-hmm. And let's just see how far through them we can we can get. So starting point is the first house. And for my significations of the houses, um, you can only fit so much on here, but the primary four significations, I mean, first, what we'll say is that it's an angular house. It is The first house is associated with Mercury. It's said to be the place where Mercury rejoices or has its joy. And the significations I have here are that Mercury or the first house signifies the self, the body, the character, and the appearance of the native or the person who, whose birth chart you're talking about or who owns the birth chart that's being looked at. Uh, what do you guys think about those significations? 
I mean, they, I, those are my significations. Then I think I, I ripped off some from you. So Kelly, so yes, I think I, you I should think enjoy them. I agree with lots of you. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Because we both have these diagrams floating around. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is, the first house is the most you part of the chart. So it essentially describes partly your physical appearance. It speaks to your physical vitality. So the underlying kind of health or vibrancy within your constitution, if you like. It's not necessarily going to tell us, well, there's some nuances between the first and the sixth house, but primarily the the level of energy or, or vitality, I think, is the first house, the life spirit inside your body. Yeah. Well, I would say that it is both the animating spirit as well as the machinery that it animates. That's beautiful. You know, we've machinery. talked about this before yeah. that especially in a whole sign system, the first house is where heaven meets earth, mm-hmm. right? It's where, you know, it's where the, you know, the ghost and the machine interface. Mm-hmm. And so this first house has significations that are both spiritual and psychological, as well as very bodily. Physical. Which have yeah. to do, you know, body shape, body functioning, bodily appearance, yeah. but also characterological. And yes. so any planet which is in the first house um, will be enacted and embodied. Mm. That's and, a beautiful way of describing it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so, Inside yeah, and it's out. it's sort of <laughs> what a lot of people are looking at when they're looking at astrology. Like, oh, what is this person like? Or what am I like? Start with the planet. If there's a planet in, in the, the first, first house, house mm-hmm. yeah. uh, the planet, w- the person will literally enact that constantly. Yeah. And that's a great rectification tool as well. Like if you have somebody that has their ascendant really late in a sign or really early in a sign and you're not sure if it's one sign or another, if there's a planet that's in the first house in mm. one of them that's not in the first house in the other, if that person, if like let's say Mars is the planet, then that person is going to come off as very Marsy, mm. either in their physical appearance and something connected with Mars about how they appear or, or their physicality or alternatively in terms of their character or character traits or how they put themselves forward will tend to be more martial if they have like Mars in the first house, let's say. Yeah. And if you're totally. choosing between, let's say, person has Mars and Sag and Saturn and Capricorn, and you've got a rising that could be either, like, mm. Mm. are they uh, are they a bold and sometimes obnoxious truth teller yeah. who likes uh, exercise, Mars and <laughs> Sag physical. in the first? Right. Yeah. Or are they like thin and grim? Yeah. You know, with Saturn and Cap in the first. More um, reserved. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, are they reticent? And erect. As a as a Saturn ruled ascendant person, how dare you, Austin? (laughs) I thought that was on your. Wasn't that on your business cards? Thin and grim. Thin and erect. Thin thin and erect. (laughs) 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 I don't. I don't think that was on my business card. But I mean, oh my gosh, this is great. Um, That's very funny. And so, what happens when you have multiple planets in the first house, Kelly? Well, you get to be all things. You get to be many things. Well, and so, yeah, and so- I suspect the planet nearest the ascendant degree comes out. Well, you're, you're going to get into a complicated but, judging in yes. terms of influence. That's where um, dignity, you know, which planet yes. is more comfortable in that sign is really going to show because that planet will tend to lead the parade. Um, but yeah, if you've got a one planet in the first house, that's such a wonderful starting point Huge. for understanding that person. Right. Yeah. Definitely. 
Yes. Um, so understanding the person both in terms of their their mind and their character, but as well as their body. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. that's the reason why Mercury has its joy in the first house. It's because Mercury in astrology, especially traditional astrology, always plays this role of having this dual role or bringing together and being the bridge between two different worlds. Uh, and nowhere is that more evident than the first house where you have that union of the the spirit or the mind as well as the the body, the body. and the physical incarnation. Yeah. Yeah, it's also um in that it's the most immediate house. Um it's mm -hmm. your direct interface with the rest of the world. And so a planet that is there as well as the ruling planet speaks very strongly to what your style of interfacing with everything else that's not you is. Yeah. And so there's also the, you know, one of the dualities there is self-world. Yeah. Right? There's um, mind-body, self-world. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, above, above the horizon, below the horizon, night, day, et cetera, the et cetera. The inside, outside. And then yeah. on a, with Mercury uh, rejoicing in the first, there's also like, how is it easiest to talk to people? Yeah. It's easiest to talk to people face-to-face. -face, yeah. Right? And that's first house is uh, is it's immediate and present mm. now um and so if you're doing the astrology of physical health or of mental health um planets which are in the uh in the first house or and or ruling the first house should be of absolutely primary concern mm. right the uh, the planet ruling the first house is critical for and we need to stop and define that if we're going to okay. go into house rulership so right now in the initial starting point that everybody learns at the beginning and is pretty straightforward because you can see it visually if you just look at the houses is that there are planets in different houses and some planets yes. some houses have planets in them in your birth chart and, and other planets are. don't have any houses in them or appear to be empty. Yeah. And that's often a question that a lot of beginner students I see come up hundreds of times is just what does it mean if I have a house that's empty and doesn't mm. have any planets in it? Yeah, it looks disconcerting because it's the eye naturally goes, you know, if you if you do have multiple planets in a sign or in a house, your, your eye is naturally drawn to that. But every house has a planetary ruler that is responsible for the topics of that house. Mm -hmm. So whether that planet, it can be anywhere in the chart, but if it is the, I mean, I, I typically just use the planetary ruler of the sign on the house. And I know there are other ways of going that, about that. That's definitely the place to start. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you've got a sign that overlaps with that house. If you're if you've got Sagittarius rising, then Jupiter is the ruler of the first. Yeah. And this is why to go back to our point earlier in the preliminary, like this is why you want to look at what is the unique sign house combination in the chart you're looking at. Right. In terms of like is Leo on the cusp, because it's with whole sign houses, it's easy because the house fully aligns with the, the sign. sign. Yeah. Uh, but with um, other forms of house division, when you're looking at house rulerships, it's usually said to be whatever sign is at the beginning of the house or the starting with point. The cusp line. Right. The cusp yeah. of the house, the planet that rules that sign is said to be the ruler of the house. And yeah. therefore, it is said to uh, when a planet's sign aligns with the cusp or the starting point of the house, the planet that rules that sign is said to have. Some role to players said to be in charge of that house. So it's not just planets placed in houses that are important relative to that house, but it's also the planet that rules or in, is in charge of that house that has something significant to say about how the topics associated with that house will play out in the native's life and chart. Yeah. And if you're beginning, 
read if there's a planet in there, read that. And then if there's not a planet in there, read the ruler. Read the ruler. Um, until you have some practice, you're going to get super confused by trying to read the ruler and in relationship to planets that are already there, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Um, if there's a planet there, think about that first. Yeah. And then if there's not, point. look at the ruler. Mm. And then if you have uh, both, then usually it's a matter of uh, priority and precedence where planets in the house have uh, greater precedence initially, but the ruler has greater precedence or importance oftentimes in the long term or later on. Overall. Sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, but the first house, it's very much, it's you. It's going to tell us the most obvious and striking things about your personality, your body, body your physicality. Yeah. And yeah. in terms of the, the ruler of the first house though, because that's really important, the ruler of the first house is the planet that rules the, the rising sign. Mm -hmm. So let's give an example. Let's say if a person has their ascendant in Gemini, or another way to phrase that is just the person has Gemini rising, then Mercury is the, the ruler of Gemini. So therefore, uh, if the ascendant is also in Gemini, then Mercury becomes the ruler of the first house. Mm. So then you would want to see where Mercury is located in the chart, and that will tell you something about how some of the first house topics manifest themselves in the life of the native. Mm. So you would want to look at what sign of the zodiac Mercury is located in, and that will color some things about the first house. You want to see what house Mercury is located in, because Mercury, the ruler of the first house, might be in, let's say, the seventh house or the tenth house. Yeah. And then you want to see what aspects Mercury has to it in terms of part of its overall planetary condition to see if it's working well in the chart or if it has some challenges for some reason. Yeah. I mean, and there's so many layers into that, and that's where we get into all the beautiful chart interpretation. But yeah, I think it is good to know the the planetary ruler piece, but yeah, especially if it's empty, because yes, everybody, people, everybody so worries we, about that. Um, you right. have a self, even yes. if you don't have a planet. Even in the if first you don't house. have a planet, you, you, you do have, have a, body. a body. You definitely yeah. have a body. Right. You do have a character. a character. Yes. Well, not everyone has character. <laughs> oh, they have a character, <laughs> right? It might not be a pleasant character. <laughs> I mean, thin and grim, but you know, no. We're I don't, just I don't think that you. was the keyword, but that's what I'm going with. <laughs> okay. Uh, so. Going back to the first house, um, are we done with the ruler? Or do we want to? I want to touch on one point about the first house and its yeah. ruler, which is just that the first house is so important uh, that paying attention to the ruler of the first house is actually one of the most crucial starting points in chart interpretation in general. Yes. So mm -hmm. we'll go back to like planets in the houses and stuff like that. But just to finish up this point about the rulers of the houses, you really want to pay attention to um, in ancient astrology. The name for the first house, or one of the names of the mm. first house, was the the helm, as in the the helm of a ship, which is like the, where the steering wheel is, the where you steer a, a boat from or a yeah. ship from. And the planet that rules the first house was said to be the steersman or the captain of the ship. Yeah, the planet with its hands on the steering wheel, basically. Right. So the ruler of the first house is probably one of, if not the most important house ruler in the chart mm. because its placement is going to tell you something about not just what topics the native's life tends to be steered towards based on what house it's located in, but also um, how the native goes about steering the sort of metaphorical ship of their life in general and whether that tends to happen or they tend to operate things with greater ease or whether they tend to run into certain issues and sort of steering the overall ship. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so one way to boil that down is that the ruler of the rising has a lot to do with decision making. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The position and condition of the ruler of the rising will tell you a lot about what factors a person mm -hmm. takes in when mm -hmm. they make decisions. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, do they err on the side of wildness or caution or stupidity or, you know, whatever yeah. it is, but decision making, which is if you, you know, with the first house, we're looking, we're looking at questions uh, that are mm, fundamental. Like, I don't know, what are they like? You know, yeah. do, are, do they have good judgment? Mm. Um, are they, Bit you impulsive, know, um, a are, head. are they healthy? Are they sick a lot? Um, yeah. What is their body shaped like? Yeah. You know, are they always lean? well presented? Right. You know, are they, people are with they Venus? puffy? Yeah. <laughs> are they round? Are they stocky? Are yeah, they, they tall square? and thin? Are they, yeah. are they rectilinear? <laughs> It's a, right. it's a better word for square. All right. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and sometimes that can also manifest as like I've done some charts and done some work on um, people that have had like physical disabilities or things that are yeah. um, causing like impediments or sort of like speed bumps in the functioning of the body in some way or another, whether yes. it's something that the person is born with from the start of their life or whether it's something that comes up later in the life for some reason, sometimes that can come up as a topic associated with either the first house or the ruler of the first house. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, the condition I, of the body. Yeah. I would say that that is, if I had to pick one thing to look at when doing physical health, mm -hmm. um, first rule ruler of the first. The, ruler of the ascendant. Yeah. And there's another house and we'll get to that one. We'll get to that one. Yeah. Sure. Going back, I want to go back to one of the the astronomical significations and the reason why all of the houses signify different. There's kind of a misconception in modern astrology where, when astrology went psychological, they started treating the entire chart as representing different parts of the native psyche and saying that different parts of the chart are just extensions of the native psyche, and it's all you. But one of the things that you notice really quickly when you go into traditional astrology is that. The first house is really the house that is most closely associated with the native or the mm -hmm. person born at that moment, and the other houses represent different people or different parts of the person's life. Yeah. So, like your first, the first house is you. The seventh house is your partner. The fourth house is your parents. The fifth house is your children, and so on and so forth. The eleventh house is your friends. So, part of the reason for that astronomically, though, and why the first house. If you're going to pick one of the 12 houses that's so closely associated with the native, is because the birth chart is um, a diagram that shows the alignment of the planets, the alignment of the cosmos at the moment of your birth. And just as the rising sign depicts the sign of the zodiac that was rising over the eastern horizon and the stars and planets that were emerging from under the earth and were emerging into visibility at the exact moment that you were born uh, at the exact moment that you emerged presumably from like your your mother yeah just you emerged from your mother basically at that moment and the rising sign represents the emergence of the cosmos or what was emerging at that moment mm -hmm. and that becomes the connection between basically the symbolic connection between the first house or the rising sign and what was happening in that moment, which is basically you emerging physically into life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you guys have any other? Is there anything else about that in terms of that notion of? It's just so important the notion of emergence and the notion of the rising sign astronomically and the connection between the two, 
and just the notion of the first house is that primary house that represents you in the chart mm. versus the other houses often representing other people in your life or other parts of your life. Yeah, there's something in that idea of, you know, you become your own creature or your own being at the moment of birth. You know, you mm -hmm. become separate from your mother, you are breathing independently of her, and, and you know, once the umbilical cord is cut, you are surviving independently of her. So there is that sense of sort of being a complete or a separate entity. Um, right. But the symbolism, yeah, of the birth piece, you know, the sun or any planet, you know, they they get born when they come over the ascendant. They they emerge that coming forth idea, which um, you know the ancient Greeks have encapsulated in their their moon phase system as well. But that's a, that's a different model. But the concept of this is the the birth or the beginning or the emerging. And that's a really important point that in ancient astrology and ancient philosophy and embryology, especially with the Stoics, they viewed like the um, the baby or the fetus as like an extension of the mother's body up until the moment of birth and often use the analogy like a piece of fruit that's growing on a tree mm. that's still like you sort of view it as part of the tree until that moment where you pluck the apple from the tree and then suddenly it's an apple that's sort of on its own in some yeah. ways yeah and that moment of birth when you are suddenly uh, your own entity that is really symbolically the start of your life independently from the mother. And that's why yeah. the birth chart is cast for the moment of birth as opposed to, let's say, the moment of conception or something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so just to take the fruit harvesting quite literally, when you're doing, you know, let's say you're 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 getting some plant matter to do some astrological magic, you harvest with an electional chart. Mm. Right. And what's in the first house is most important. Important. Because that's when it's, you know, it's born as your apple rather mm -hmm. than part of the tree. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And there's lots of others because that's the other thing is this whole notion of the moment of origin or the inception of something. Like we're talking when we're doing natal astrology, we're talking about the inception of a person being born at a specific moment in time. But you can also extend this notion of incept of symbolic moments of origin to intellectual astrology like other things. Mm. Um, and then you cast a chart for, let's say, the beginning of a relationship between two people or when two people get married and therefore the symbolic beginning of a marriage. Mm. Or what are some other important like inceptional moments? Founding a business. A business, yeah. Yeah. Founding yeah. a business or um, starting a long journey or a voyage or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, anything that has a symbolic a, a moment of time in which it clearly begins and there's a clear inception of the beginning of that thing you can cast an astrological chart for and you can um, look at it relative to the 12 houses. Once you understand the meanings of the 12 houses, mm -hmm. you can understand how they would apply to those different types of ventures or undertakings or entities even though the houses originally the 12 houses were conceptualized purely within the context of natal astrology and that's primarily what we're going to be talking about today. Mm. But the first house, if you're doing electional astrology, also represents the primary house that represents what was initiated or born at that time. Yeah. All right. So what else do we need to talk about with respect to the first house? We've talked about it being the house most closely associated with the native. We've talked about the sort of mind-body duality of the first house. Appearance, we've talked about a little bit, but appearance is another good one mm. that gets associated with the first house mm -hmm. very strongly. And we talked about that a little bit. There's different ways that that can manifest, but 
It's usually especially associated with planets in the first house, sometimes dictating things about how the native appears to other people and just their physicality. So you mentioned Saturn, I think, already, right? Yeah, I mentioned I, for the example I gave um, Mars and Sag in the first versus Saturn and Cap in the first. Mm. Okay. So Mars can sometimes be said to indicate like a red or, or ruddy complexion, and Saturn can be said to indicate more of a, a darker complexion or something like that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's a little tricky just talking like in terms of different people and different uh, backgrounds or other things like that, but broadly speaking, archetypally, it can. Be applied in that yeah, way. It'd be like they relative, be coloring. Yeah, relative, relative to parents. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, and then also shapes, shapes and shapes, heights, orientation. Yeah. You know. Hmm. Um, you know, Saturn tends to give leaner people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mars tends to give more like mesomorphic, you know, muscly people with yes. higher metabolisms, which right? makes sense. And the Moon would give more fleshy um, type appearances. Yeah. Jupiter also gives a relatively abundant. Uh, <laughs> a full figure is that yeah. what you're trying to say <laughs> right. and and so on and so on yeah <clears throat> and so there are lots of other factors but you start um with, with the ascendant yeah and then venus is a good one because sometimes venus in the first house can be a basic delineation sometimes venus wherever it is placed can indicate things that are aesthetically appealing and for whatever reason Venus in the first house can sometimes indicate people that are, are are stand out as being particularly striking from an like an aesthetic standpoint. Mm -hmm. So I think I used in my book I use Angelina Jolie having Venus in the first house and also uh, Paul Newman, the actor Paul Newman from yeah. like the nineteen fifties, yeah, um, as just being people that were like good looking or well proportioned or however you want to quantify whatever it is when we say that somebody is like visually appealing. Uh, sometimes something like Venus in the first house can then. Um, quantify that or can qualify that in some way. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's very true. Yeah, and so a person will tend to strongly emanate um, both visually and invisibly the qualities of any planets that are placed in the first. Again, Absolutely. we're talking about uh, angular houses um, being very strong positions from which to act for planets. Planets mm -hmm. in the first have a very <clears throat> they have a direct input into the person very right? immediate so, very obvious very instant so you'll just see you'll see their quality much more easily than a planet tucked away in the third yes right um and i think one of the one of the reasons perhaps that we're having a difficult time knowing exactly what to say about the first is that it has global impact on the chart and the life mm. and so it kind of affects everything everything um because it's it's the object of the chart itself, which mm. is the person. Yeah. Um, and all of the other all of the other houses are the person in relationship to that person, or the person when they're in this circumstance. Yes. The other houses are all like little snapshots or vignettes of like when you do this thing, this is what it's like. Right. But like, the first is just you. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's of global importance, and that's. Uh, Chris, like you were saying, you know, it's the it's the steersman, um, and that got simplified um, recently into like, oh, it's the ruler of the chart, right? Mm. And I don't think that's a useful way of putting it, but I understand the reasons for that. It is the ruler of the sentence always super important. Yes, it should always be considered. Um, you know, in virtually any any question you're trying to answer when looking at a chart, always look at the the ruler of the rising. Yeah. And that one of the things that's funny about that is in terms of different astrological traditions over the past 2,000 years, that's one of the commonalities for the past 2,000 years is almost all of them say 
that the ruler of the ascendant and its placement in the chart are are very important to pay attention to. Yeah. Whether yeah. it's like Hellenistic or medieval Arabic or Persian or uh, Renaissance or Indian astrology, it's like they all pay attention to the ruler of the ascendant as having prime importance in the chart. Yep. Very consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what you were just saying, Austin, made me think again, just going back to the idea of prominence mm-hmm. of angular houses being prominent and the first house being one of the most, if not the most prominent house, because what is more prominent than um, how you appear to mm-hmm. other people when you like walk up to a person, and what is the first thing that you notice about a person when you when you see them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would go ahead. I was just say, and that specific thing will be different for everyone based on their appearance, but mm-hmm. you will see the indications of that via the first house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's it's worth yeah. noting that if you're looking at someone. Oh, from the the distance of a movie, for example, if you're mm-hmm. like, oh, that actor, you're seeing other houses. If you met them in person, you'd be getting their first house. Yes. Yeah. Right. You know, no, no, no filters and cinematography and all that. And like, makeup and lighting. Because and- sometimes what you're seeing if you're watching a movie or something is you're seeing the person's 10th house yeah. or you're seeing yeah. like their reputation their or their, their work mm-hmm. or their um, career or what have you. And that may be what you know a celebrity from versus like if you meet a celebrity like in the airport and like sit and talk with them for a couple of hours and you're like, oh, you're um You're like this whole other person. Yeah. Or yeah. like you're not as tall as I thought you would be. Or, yeah. yeah. Or <laughs> Oh, you're shorter than I yeah, thought. Yeah, you're nicer or yeah. right. Yeah. You know. You or yeah, like you really come off as very arrogant in the movies, but in person you're actually very humble or something like that, or vice totally. versa. Totally. Yes. Yeah, a hundred percent. Okay. Um, one other point I wanted to bring up that you mentioned briefly, Kelly, and that made me think of something we should touch on is that we're talking a lot about natal placements in terms of planets in the house and planets ruling the house. But also another thing to take into account is when planets transit through the houses, mm-hmm. sometimes it can show a temporary activation of the topics associated with that house in the native's life. Mm. And that can be very important because all of a sudden, even if those topics weren't prominent in other parts of your life, or if it's an empty house and it's not, let's say, not notable for some reason, if you have a, a planetary transit that goes through that house, some transits are very quick and can last for, let's say, a month. Mm-hmm. And other planetary transits are very slow and can last for two or three years or, or even longer. Mm. And you're going to have a much longer activation of that. So maybe there's some transits that we could talk through just to, because that's another way of, Qualifying and typifying the houses is by talking about them within the context of their transits. So, one first house transit that I always think is super notable and I use for rectification is um, Saturn going through your first house Mm -hmm. and what that can feel like or what that can be experienced like if the first house has to do with your mind as well as your body. Mm. Sometimes Saturn can restrict or can slow things down. Uh, Most of the time. Most of the (laughs) time. I'm not even sure, but sometimes. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the Saturn's nature is to go slow to do something long lasting, and one of the things I notice when I'm doing transit work with clients is they get so frustrated because whatever Saturn's touching is just not moving as fast as they would like, and partly because you just have to go very thoroughly when Saturn's around. Yeah, right. I mean, any planet that's visiting the first impacts a person's health, mental state, and decision making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And if it's satin, there's going to be a melancholy tone. So the right. mindset becomes more melancholy and morose. And that's or relative at, to how you normally at, are. It, at best, it could be the person settles into a long game patience. Yes. But that's still slower than normal. Correct. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So like in rectification, sometimes if I'm trying to figure out a rising sign, I'll ask person um, if when Saturn was transiting through their f first house. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes <laughs> they'll report like a period of um, having lost weight during that period. That is one positive benefit or usually perceived as a positive is Saturn in the first. But yeah. if you're losing weight because you're very sick, yeah, exactly. that's not a positive. It's like but... sometimes it's they went through a period where they had greater discipline and they yeah. cut down, cut out sweets or, or they started fasting. The amount of calories that day they meant to rather than. Yeah. And so they had a yeah. two or three year period where they did lose weight or in other instances it can be they went through a health a negative health crisis or a rough period for health and yes. lost weight as a result of becoming like emaciated or something Sick. like that yeah um so but either way it's still a manifestation of the same archetype of saturn sort of like body. lessening things as it goes through the first house which represents the body yeah 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 what are some other transits through the first house um, well i mean the mars which is when you know everyone cuts themselves or Right. Um, has a car accident or let's say yeah, best burns. case scenario first. Best oh, case scenario <laughs> Mars, Mars transit through the first house and uh, maybe getting a lot more physical exercise. Yeah, physical exercise. Suddenly having a lot more of energy. Confident, maybe more decisive in general because Mars is going to be less like pleasing and more. Let's just get it yeah, done. You'll also right. be more restless and irritable when Mars is in the first. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are. <laughs> you will tend yeah. to embody the quality of intemperate heat. Yeah. <laughs> right. You'll be like, let's do something. Right. Yes. And that might be that might go into exercise. That might go into being more argumentative, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Um. But you get Mars going through. Yeah. That. And the, the, you're right. There's a heat. I mean, that's the other. Well, that now we're sort of veering back into the planets, but Mars is going to bring heat, which is activating and potentially aggravating, whereas Saturn is cooling, which you know can be stiffening and restrictive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So, and sometimes. As you were saying, with some transits like Mars through the first house, it can indicate a period where somebody might have an accident or an injury as Mars is going through the, the first house. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be like a life-threatening injury, but you can be chopping vegetables and you can cut yourself three times in a week. Or right. somebody recently on one of the social media channels was doing some home electrical work and burned themselves when Mars was going through their first house or something. Yeah, well, you sure. want to you want to take it relative to a person's health baseline. That's true. Um yeah. you know, if somebody is struggling with a chronic condition and you see that Saturn or Mar you know, a malefic is about to enter their first house for mm -hmm. a period of time, um then that should read differently to you than if someone is like basically super healthy. Yes. But if someone's, you know, if, if someone's let's say their health mentally or physically is mm. vulnerable, if someone is prone to depression, yes, and Saturn is, yeah. is about to enter their first house, that's going to be a struggle because it's going to ping that. And that's I think that is really important because whenever I do talk about Saturn and the mental health activations of Saturn, it's always relative. You know, if you are someone who typically suffers from this, unfortunately, this could be a little bit more problematic. And you, the reason you share that with someone is, have you got your support systems in place? You know, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And if someone, you know, maybe they've got a, a Jupiter first house or a lot of sun energy there and they don't normally suffer from depression or other mental health issues, it may be a time where their normally jovial kind of energy is tempered or reduced for yeah, that Yeah, they're a little timeline. bit more sedate. They're a little bit more sedate. And that may not be a negative, but it will be different from how they normally are. <laughs> yeah, I could think <laughs> of some people I'd like to 
put Saturn in there first. You'd like to slow them <laughs> down a bit. Take it, take it down about fifteen percent. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and um, yeah. So let's see other other transits. There can be like Venus going through your first Venus, house. The Sun usually they're nice. Yeah, that can be like Venus can be a good time to like have a get a makeover or get a new. Hair, I always want to buy dresses when Venus goes through my first house. Okay. I'm not really a dress girl, so then every every year when Venus goes through my first, I end up buying dresses that just sit there for the next right. four months. Like a change of wardrobe. Change basically. of wardrobe. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah people, change of style. People will become more concerned with aesthetics and more social than they usually are when Venus goes through the first. Yeah. Yeah, or sometimes even. Um, Aesthetics can uh, can extend to the creation of aesthetics or even um, depictions of yourself. Like I remember years ago that I had this exact conjunction of like Venus and Neptune on my ascendant one day, and I like um, like took a selfie and like put that up, and that became like my main selfie that was really good for ages. years on like yeah. MySpace or something like that. Like it was way a while back ago, yeah, ancient ancient times. <laughs> Uh, so Not quite ancient. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that can be things that you can do sometimes if you want to do things proactively. Yeah, it's yeah. like pay attention to when you have a, a favorable planet moving through your first house and maybe conjoining the degree of your ascendant and try to use that to your advantage. Yeah, if you have to take new headshots for work or something, Venus on your ascendant would be beautiful, and you want to get that once a year, so you got to plan for that. Right. Yeah. Another thing that this raises is that sometimes um, I, the last episode I think I did before we released this one was an episode on relationships, and we mentioned in the process the concept of synastry. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you can have somebody that has their natal Saturn in your first house, and so maybe that has like let's say an inhibiting effect for some reason on your personality. That there's certain yes. people that maybe you don't get along with, or they you feel that they restrict you in some way. Um, or you could have, let's say, you could have the positive opposite, which would be someone whose Jupiter falls in your first house, and they make you feel alive, or they make you feel confident, or they take you on adventures, or they're someone that you always find you're learning a lot with, or what have you. Right. So, they, they bring a yeah. sense of like optimism into your life. Yeah. Sure. Uh, or a hopefulness, or maybe they're just always showering you with gifts or opportunities or something. Right. Yeah. Or let's see other. What's like a negative example? Like somebody that. Uh, comes into your life and like accidentally does something, and it like they accidentally uh, distract you while you're driving, and you get you like crash your car or something like that, yeah. and get like an injury. Uh, sometimes just people's sinistry with your first house can can reflect ways in which your relationship with that person can affect. Uh, both your body as well as your mind, yeah. basically. So whether whether you're doing timing or relationship astrology, the first house is going to be a really prime part of the chart. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Um, I think that's pretty good for the first house. Are there any? I feel like there's something major that we're missing about the first house that we need to mention, but I'm struggling to to think of it right now. And also, I'm starting to think of how we still have five other houses to go yes, through. Yes, I'm like, I feel like there are other houses in the chart that we have to give some time. Sure. To. Well, yeah. we're we're setting a foundation here, yes. so yeah. Um, I think we we did a pretty good job. Yeah. Um, anything else before we move on? Anything? Nope. No. Okay. All right. Yeah. So let's. Throw up our diagram again to take a look at the base significations for the second house. So the second house is a succeedant house. It is the house where when planets are placed in it, they're rising up towards the first house. So it has some sense of that which follows after what happens in the first house. And if what happens in the first house is you're born and you emerge into life, 
Then the second house is what happens immediately after that, which is um, when you're moving downwards in the order of houses, you're descending down underneath the earth and you're moving further into the earth, into the sort of in broader metaphysical terms, let's say like the realm of, of physical incarnation. And here we find in the second house some basic topics having to do with material things, basically, tends to be the primary meaning of the second house. So things like finances, possessions, and income become three of the sort of core significations of the second house that are pretty consistent uh, in the Western astrological tradition for most of the past 2,000 years. Yeah. I usually think of it as like the main money house. So in terms of, you know, Earning money, spending money, saving money. What what is your general kind of experience with, and perhaps attitudes to, the cash flow? Yeah, yeah. I, I think of it very similarly in terms of assessing, because some people, some people hoard. Yes. Some people spend everything that they have. Mm. Right. Some people have a really hard time holding mm-hmm. money. Some people have a, are good at holding but have a hard time like figuring out how to get it. Yes. You know, some people are ton in, ton out, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, um I the sort of retention, yeah, income, expenditure and retention or holding yes. financial the, power. The, the level to which you can or can't do that, I guess. Or just what your pattern is. Yeah. Um, and so planets that are in the second, my, one of my one of my favorite single words uh, for that comes from Banati, and it's the sub the substance of the native, whatever mm. whatever thingness yeah. is associated with the life, which is possessions, which is money, which is to a lesser degree the body. Um, also, we were talking about this yesterday, the food. Yes. That you put into your body mm-hmm. yeah. because food starts as a possession. Yes. You're not allowed to eat it if it's not yours. Correct. That's why you have to pay at restaurants, right? <laughs> That's why you, yeah. Like the 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 primordial purchase is food. Yes. Right? Or the primordial the possession is food. Yeah. Um which is substance which then contributes to the substance of the body. Yes. Um and so yeah, I, I like substance. That's a yes. great metaphor for like the succeedant, the second house being a succeedant house that rises up to the first and mm-hmm. sort of supports the first in mm. doing so. Mm-hmm. It's that which rises up to and supports the first house in the physical body. Mm-hmm. When like you were saying, if you're just like, okay, now you're born, what do you do with yeah. the baby? Uh, here's some food, baby. You feed it, yeah. Right. Well, first, so, let, yeah. let's get some swaddling substance. Yes. Right, let's get you some clothes. Put, put let's some get stuff. you some food. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Here's here's the stuff you're going to need, yes. baby. Yes. And I, when you were talking about planets in the second I also think it might be worth mentioning that the sign on the second cusp is going to, you know, flavor your attitude to that. So, you know, different signs have more holding on or hoarding tendencies and other signs have more spending or giving away tendencies. So exactly what you do with it, of course, comes out of the specific things, but the 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 topic, the material you're dealing with. And did mind. we mention that for the first house that in ancient astrology, like two thousand years ago, when they said your sign or your zodiac you sign, yeah. they meant traditionally your rising your sign. Rising sign. So prior to the past hundred years, prior to the twentieth century, um, your the the sign of the zodiac that your ascendant was located in was said to qualify like and your... typify you your character and personality and everything else um, much more than your your sun sign was necessarily. Uh, yeah. But that extends now to the second house, and that. 
the quality of the zodiac sign on the cusp of the second house is going to uh, characterize and qualify um, some of the things related to like substance or uh, material goods in your life? Absolutely. Even how you eat, for instance, whether you're a fast eater or a slow eater or a methodical eater. Well, and whether you like crap food or yeah. you, you tend towards the healthy. Spicy food or, yeah. I, one of the things I look at also with what's in the second is what does a person spend on? Mm, yes. Because yeah. other than like, yes, I spend money on food. Right? Yes. Everybody has to do that. The That's same a degree. basic common thing. Right. Yeah. And then shelter. But then once you get past food and shelter, people people allocate what financial potency they have very differently. Yes. Yeah. And so it's not just what they spend it on, but also how they spend it. So mm -hmm. going back to like the Mars mm -hmm. Saturn dynamic, which we're probably going to keep coming back to, but it's because it's such it's such a distinct and dramatic dynamic that it's the easiest sometimes to start with as a contrast. Yeah, as a contrast, but like Saturn in the second house and this sense of um, Saturn tends to like withhold things, and so a person with Saturn in the second can tend to not spend money as as freely or content mm -hmm. content to withhold spending, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Whereas somebody with Mars in the second house. Um, might spend very freely or very quickly or very impulsively. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are two extremely opposite ways of dealing with materiality when it comes to expenses or expenditures in the second house. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and what you would notice too is that each of those planetary profiles would have a different psychology towards money as well. Mm -hmm. So the Saturn approach can be more, I better save or I must save for retirement even though I'm 15 years old or what have you. And that, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that actually. It's probably, we all need a little bit of that, but the Saturn of course can take it to an extreme where it, you know, it may not, it can be a bit Scrooge-like or it may not spend in some situations where it's appropriate to. Yeah. Right. Well, if you yeah. have that, that's going to, um, you know, generally speaking, Saturn, whatever Saturn placements tend to improve once you get older. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Saturn in the second, a lot of times you grow up with some feeling of not enough. Not enough. Yeah. And that may not be literal poverty. But if you go to a, let's say you go to a fancy school system and your family is, you know, does fine, but you don't have the $100 shoes, yeah. then you grow up with the sense of I have less than everybody else. Yes. Um, and so that'll translate into, oh, I better keep what I have yeah. when you're older, et cetera, et cetera. And so that that's just something. The psychological patterning, which you might be able to see very clearly when a person is an adult, has precedence. Yes. You know, and that'll look different. You know, um, there's an association in a lot of geotish with the second and your your family. Fourth is still family, but when you think about the substance that you are provided with mm -hmm. until you are on your own, that is all your family. Yeah. Right, you know whether you have the fancy sneakers or, or not, or you know you've got hand-me-downs from yeah. you know from your from two brothers up, right? Like that's a second house experience. Mm. I love that you mentioned that and use that um, analogy about early life because one of the examples I use in my book, uh, Hellenistic Astrology, available in fine bookstores everywhere, everywhere, everywhere literally, literally everywhere, is um, somebody that had Saturn in the second house in a night chart, and I think it was also the ruler of his ascendant. So very important planet and also a little bit challenging or tricky. And he um, grew up during the Great Depression and his um, family was in poverty for the entire like first part of his life or first chapter of his life. And growing up, a common phrase around the house that he would hear often is, 
that's all we have. Mm -hmm. And that got like built into his sort of psychology very early on growing up in like the first 10 or 20 years of his life to the extent that as he grew up, even later in life, even though he became financially stable and successful to some extent, sort of psychologically, he would always still sort of behave or act or spend money very um, carefully and very, he'd be very reserved about spending money basically because mm -hmm. he would still be operating under that initial psychological premise of um, scarcity or poverty in some sense. Yeah. yeah. And sort of fear surrounding that. Yeah. yeah. And so, in the converse is obviously true, right? Somebody has a strong Jupiter in the second. They'll yeah. be like, ah, oh, it'll be fine. She'll be you know, right. Sure, we can, you know, let's- um, We'll make it work. Let's upgrade to first class. Yeah. Right? It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and that's usually underpinned by experiences earlier yes. on where, where it was just fine. Yeah. Or things worked out. They could take a risk and recover yeah. from it or sustain it. And one of the things that's so funny about that, just to get into a broader conversation, is how- um, each person, depending on their placements, will take tend to take for granted that that's how it is for everybody. Mm -hmm. And if they tend to grow up in that context, because you see this normally, just like meeting people in different, like socioeconomic or or sort of social situations, or depending on their family as they're growing up, mm -hmm. um, can sometimes tend to not realize that the way that they grow up and experience the world is not the same way that other people experience the world, even though that should be. Obvious, we have a tendency to universalize our own experience and assume it's the same way for everybody else, even yeah. if on some level we're conscious that that's not always the case. Well, that's one thing that being a working astrologer makes it very clear. Right. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, I've talked to a thousand people in depth about their lives. And yeah, it's very clear what's my life. Yes. Right? Like how it's same, different, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. But, but one of the things, though, that's annoying about that when dealing with clients is if you can make a statement about a person's life based on their birth chart mm -hmm. and about this being a unique factor of their life, and they can say, no, that doesn't really register. That I don't recognize that as being a unique factor in my life. That must be the same for everyone. And they will assume it's the same for everybody mm -hmm. when, in fact, that is a unique sort of experience for them. That Let's say that they grew up in, let's say, poverty in the second house, or or the opposite that they grew up having great financial wealth or what have you, mm. not realizing that there's like such a wide spectrum because you can only see that if you step outside of your life and see how tons of other people experience that particular area of life. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what I would say is that not everything in a chart is unique. The chart describes a person's life. And some, you know, there are some things that are very common about my life mm. that the tons of people could relate to. And there's yeah. some things that are very weird and unusual. Yeah. And, you know, if you have like a part of your life that's pretty fucking normal, then the significators are going to be pretty totally normal. Totally average. Right. It's not going to be like, oh, yeah, you have this five planet conjunction right on the midheaven rule. No, yeah. it's like, it's the the birth chart's going to reflect what's part of the baseline for most people. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of what I try to focus on. And when I when I teach like how to read charts, it's look at what's way off the baseline. Yes. Look at like yes. what's amazing and look at what's like shit terrible. It's because always that's about what, the extremes. Because that's what yeah. people will actually react to. Because yeah. if you're like, you're probably going to live, oh, I don't know, 60 to 80 years. Yeah. And you know, a lot of birth charts, if you do longevity calculations, they're going to live around the average. Right. Yeah. And so it's if, average if for you, a reason. If you break that as a fact, um, it's not impressive. It might be accurate, but it's not impressive. Yeah. Right. Like 
you'll looks like you got solid middle class earning potential. Yeah. Um, you know, well, maybe that's becoming increasingly rare. But once upon a time, it was that, it that was, was the mean true. or the average. That's true. Um, but yeah, I know what you mean about like when you're just going through the chart and uh, they're like, oh, what does it say about this? And it's like, eh, pretty much what pretty you know, pretty much average, pretty yep. much what you know, which is not. Yeah. terrible or terribly Not exciting. Not amazing either. Yeah. Well, no, that's, that's a good point yeah. though in terms of um, dealing with older clients versus newer clients is oftentimes when you're reading an older client's chart, you're actually describing things that they already know about their life, which is not always super impressive because it's just like, yeah, I know that already. I know that finances have been a difficult part of my life or that finances right. have been an easy part of my life. Mm. Or conversely, if you're doing a consultation for a super young person, sometimes it can be annoying because you can say things about their life that may not be true yet, but will at some point in the future. But that can appear as if you're saying something that's not true at that present moment in time. Yeah. When I talk to, you know, when I do readings for people in their 20s, um, I always think about what this chart's going to look like, what this life is going to look like at 40. Mm. Um, and from that perspective, like yeah. you've got this amazing thing, it's going to bloom not next Just month. Yet? Yeah. Um, you know, some turkeys take a long time to cook. Yeah. You know, you can't rush Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Um, that's a great analogy. Yeah, the turkey does take a long time to cook. That's my Saturn is my turkey planet. That's your delineate. Your turkey is not yet cooked. <laughs> a, a favorable, yeah, a favorable Saturn is a turkey that's going to take all afternoon to cook. To cook, and if you yeah. take it out and try to eat it earlier, not only is it gross, it'll probably poison you. It will be. It will make you it's, very. Sick. It's not time to feast. No. Uh, on your Saturn, if you're 25. No, it is not at all. But yeah, no. With, um. Yeah. And it's one of the things that I try to focus on when I'm looking at a chart is what, you know, what are the, you know, what are the good or bad or whatever, what are the the significant configurations and what part of life are they likely to bloom in? Yes. And is the person already there? Like, you know, let's say our 57-year-old client if I look back, I'm like, oh, yeah, I bet shit got a lot better at, at 35. Yes. Right now, I will say that. Like, oh, this was really difficult until, until this X year. age. Yeah. And then check. And they're like, yep. Or yeah. like, mm, actually, it was 37. But, you know, wh whatever. Um, yeah. And anyway, that kind of a little work thinking about when when will this flower bloom yeah. and where is the person in their timeline relative to that can be really helpful. Yeah. We're getting way off of second house. What were you going to say before I interrupted you, Kelly? Do you remember? I have no idea. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, we are having some good discussions, but we are not on the second house. No, this is awesome. Let's keep yeah. going. One of the things I want to talk about is um, sometimes the placement of the ruler of the second in houses other than the second can describe how the native makes money or some topic in their life that will be tied up in their income for some reason. Mm -hmm. So for example, if the ruler of the second house, I have an example in my book where the ruler of the second house is in the 11th house and the native often ended up making money as a result of their friends mm -hmm. or their finances were often tied up in their friendships for some reason. Oh yeah, you know who has that? I can who? never say her second name properly, but the comedian Amy Poehler, or I don't know how to say it. I think it's pronounced Poehler, it's okay. spelled- Something, yeah. yeah there I'm are just, some extra letters. Yeah, there are, so it always confuses me. Uh, she has a Sag second house, sorry, a Pisces second house with Jupiter in Sag in the 11th. Nice. 
and she's got this very sort of well-known um, sort of friendship but also business partnership with Tina Fey, another comedian. Right. And they have worked together and made a lot of money together. Yeah, and they like hosted the Oscars or something together yes. a few years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, they totally did. I just looked at her chart recently, so well, she's like one of my new second house examples. Yeah, and her, the, her uh, sort of biggest show, which was uh, Parks and Recreation, yeah. everybody in that cast went on to have big career. Right. Like yeah. the the 11th house of that show. And it was her show. Right. Um, shockingly successful. It wasn't yeah. like one or two people went on to Like everybody in that show. Yeah, just about. Yeah. But uh, so one of the things I wanted to uh, bring up with the second is what does a person bother possessing? Like what do you oh, hold on to? Point. Yeah. And also what is your attitude towards possessions? Like some people at one extreme you have – um, uh, people hoarding stuff. And then you have people who are the opposite, who are kind of allergic to having too much stuff. Total minimalist, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so planets in the second, as well as the condition and position of the ruler of the second, will give you a lot of information about what is this person, one, how much stuff should a person have, according to them, and or how much stuff should they have, and what kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Chris, you were saying like the second house, the ruler of the second, where people might get their money from in terms mm-hmm. of work. Right. But I also um, have another example where the I think it was the ruler of the fourth was Venus and it was in Pisces in the second. Mm-hmm. And this person was in a very fortunate position where they didn't actually have to work for money because of family money. Because yeah. of their family mm-hmm. owned property, like farmland sort of level property that was very lucrative mm-hmm. that, you know, through the generations had just created this sort of ongoing wealth. So there was a, it, so it, whether you're working for it or if it's coming into your life in some other way, but how or where is the money coming from? Yeah. I have an like. example like that in my book as well, where the, um, it was like the grandson of the founder of the Gucci fashion empire oh, had yeah. the ruler of the fourth in the second and the yeah. ruler of the second in the fourth. Yeah. And in the 1980s, he inherited like, um, basically the entire company or 50% of the company worth hundreds of millions of, of dollars, dollars from yeah. his father's side of the family. Right. Yeah. yeah. That is, um, that is a, a very fortunate configuration for yeah. material support. Yeah. Yes. And they were the planets were well placed, which is part of that's the other part is like, is the condition of the ruler, is the ruler well placed in that sign? Mm. Or is it poorly placed based on its condition zodiacally, as well as its configurations with either benefic planets like Venus and Jupiter or its configuration with malefic planets? That's going to typify if that connection between those two houses is a more constructive or a more a uh, challenging one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and the example I just shared, Venus was in Pisces but co-present with Jupiter. Yeah. So it was like Okay. Yeah. All the money. Yeah, versus let's say <laughs> let's just do another hypothetical yeah. scenario of let's say somebody <laughs> has the ruler of the second house of finances in the fourth house of the parents and let's say I've heard stories of for example like people where they're when they're still um, growing up as teens, their family, their parents like took out a credit card in the child's name and like ran up the bill and charged yep. like thousands and thousands of dollars in it. And the person eventually becomes an adult and learns that they have a huge amount of debt because their like deadbeat deadbeat parents were um, running up their credit or what have you. Yes, yes, there are some horrible stories where I have one story where yeah, the client, the 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 individual takes on. Like one of the parents' tax problems, for mm-hmm. instance, um, 
And I think it's like the ruler of the second is in the eighth in detriment or something like that. Yeah. That's yeah. one of my favorite examples is uh, Lisa Marie Presley, who's the daughter of Elvis. Uh, she had the ruler of the second house of her finances in the eighth house of inheritance and yeah. death and other people's money. And when she turned, uh, when her father died, he left his entire estate to her uh, with the stipulation that when she turned 25 years old, she would inherit it. So the day she turned 25, uh, her second house was actually activated by perfection, of course, yeah. and then um, suddenly she inherited like a hundred million dollars or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So again, that's showing a large part of the money in her life came from this inheritance from her father. Yes. Um, but it's interesting because then there's other factors that come into play in terms of transits and other timing techniques like perfections that can tell you uh, when exactly that might happen in the person's life or yeah. when when those topics that are tied together through the rulers of the houses will become relevant active. or active. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very juicy. Definitely. Well, and I, I like talking about second house topics because clients often want to know about money and the amount of times a client will come in and say, I want to talk about my career. And I've right. now learned, are you actually wanting to talk about your career from a professional pathway job satisfaction perspective or are you asking me about that because you really want to know about your finances? Mm -hmm. right. Because in our minds, we often think, well, if I fix my job, I'll fix my finances. But in astrology, we represent, you know, money and career in two different sectors. So they're not they they can be connected and interact, but they can also operate independently from each other. Right, which is really important because there are scenarios where you have a person that, you know, is able to pursue their like, let's say, tenth house career dream job. But that, as like let's say an artist, but then financially it's something that doesn't work out for them or doesn't end up being financially lucrative. Yeah. If their seventh, if their second house isn't well situated, so that you have a real difference between yeah, they're you know achieving their dreams, yeah. but it may not necessarily support them financially, financially, or vice versa. The person that has the job that they got for the money because that was what was more important to them, and they do very well financially, but they're never able to let's say pursue their dream. Uh, through some other tenth house matter. Yeah. 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 Yep. It yeah. matters. Um, I, I, yeah, I have the rulers of the second and tenth conjoined. And so for me, yes, yes, you do. yeah, like, so that means, you know, do, do what you want, Austin. You'll yeah. eventually make money. They're both opposed by Saturn. So I didn't make any money doing that until my mid thirties. Yeah. But you know, Saturn event as I became you older. You got there in the end. So I became older and crankier and more hateful <laughs> and became and began to more resemble the planet. Uh, he began to regard me as one of his own. As well, he recognized you as Yes, and as, lifted yes, lifted the ban on my accounts. That's too funny. But yeah, generally speaking, you know, if uh, in terms of just attitude towards money. Yeah. Like Mar if Mars is connected to the second, in the second, you know, conjoining the ruler or whatever. Um Mars and if Mars transits the second, especially, it usually burns through money. Mm -hmm. You know, we we literally talk about, oh, it's burning a hole in my pocket. They yeah. burn through. We use Mars metaphors and yeah. language for spending money, mm. right? Um, whereas Saturn, Saturn will tend to deny or delay earning potential in a yeah. natal chart. Which feels like a denial when it's like, okay, it's in gonna be present. it's gonna be another fifteen years yeah. until my second house ripens. Yeah. <laughs> but in <laughs> from the, the perspective from the perspective of the life, that's a delay. Yes. Um and then when you do get something, you tend to want to hold you it. You hold on to it. Because it's you, ex a preservation you experience not having enough. Yeah. Right. And then Jupiter's great. 
We love Jupiter configured to, to the, the second. second. Yeah, right? it's usually not a money. It's th that's a client that usually doesn't need to talk about money problems. Right. Um, they might be like, general. which charity do I donate to? Yes. Yeah. How should I use my abundant wealth? Yeah. And then Venus. Uh, Venus is also favorable. The moon, if the moon is in good condition, yes, she is really... great. If the moon is not in good condition, the moon will eat your money. She will. Yeah. Um, you know, the moon in terms of material matters, acts like a benefic under a lot of circumstances and then under a number of other circumstances will act like a malefic. Really matters her condition and yeah. who she's configured to. Yeah, phase uh, phase and configuration. Yeah. And when you were talking about like clients and clients wanting to know about money, one of the things that you look at, there's, there's different timing techniques, but just paying attention to long-term transits. Mm -hmm. Going through the second house is one of the things you'd look at. Like if you see they have a year-long Jupiter transit coming up, that's going to be a different forecast than if you see that they have a two or three year Saturn transit coming up through their second house. Yep. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we all have those sort of almost, oh, you've got the Saturn in the second transit. This is what you need to know about the next three years. This is you're doing your financial housekeeping. If there are debts to pay, you've got to take that on board. And if it's a time to save for the future. I mean, you, I have had almost an equal mix of clients having sat in second house transits that are getting the reality check, like the proverbial two by four. This is what your financial situation really is. Get a grip, get organized. Mm -hmm. And then there are other clients where they're like, I always think with Saturn, it's either um, rewards or consequences. So you can get the consequences of what you haven't done, or you get the rewards from what you did do. But rewards are consequences. Well, they are. It's just, you're right. It's just a more, uh, it's the positive, I guess. Yeah, you know, you're right. Thank you for picking me up on my words. Oh, yeah. yeah. Didn't mean to pick on you. No, no, Just no, no, saying. no, 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 no. I said pick up, pick, picking me up, which is, my father has done that to me, all of us. He's like, is that the right word to use? Oh. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> no, no, I'm no. constantly doing that with my own language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, and it's, it's good. I, I would rather when that I do you that do to that other people. because you're right. A reward is just a positive consequence. So you get the consequences, positive or negative. Sure. Yeah. Uh, generally, you know, Saturn visiting the second, low risk profile. Low, oh, yeah, conservative. Right. Buy the house, that's, not the stock market, or yeah, don't that, borrow more than you can comfortably like, yeah, that, that's, pay off. Yeah, that's not the long shot with your with your money. No, uh, no, transit. no. It's very safe. It's very – and often it's boring with Saturn in mm -hmm. the second house. But it's like, well, you know, like advice your grandmother would have given you or your father, you know, if you'd had parents that cared about your mm -hmm. friend, they would have said to you, don't borrow more than you can afford. Don't buy things that you have to put on your credit card. And they would have told you to save from a young age. And that's what Saturn in the second house teaches you. Yeah, I love that. That's my kind of one of my go-tos with Saturn, thinking yeah. about Saturn transits and Saturn generals. Like stern, stern grandparent talk. It's totally grandparent talk. They're like, well, you know, if you work hard yeah. for a long time, you know, you'll get Have noticed. Have you got a plan? You yeah. know, you put the work in first. You, yeah, you got to do the no free lunches with yeah. Saturn. So yeah. So and um, other than that, so we've mentioned transits as one of the timing methods that you can use in order to determine when your second house will become oh, activated. Yeah. Perfections. But in addition to that, there's other timing techniques that you can use. Just we can just state this universally at the top, so we don't have to repeat it every time. That's but true. there's yeah. different techniques in addition to transits. There's things like annual perfections where you just start with a rising sign and you count one sign or one house per year. So the first year of the native's life is the first house and the next year after their first birthday is the second house and then so on and so forth. Um, so I've already done a previous episode. Just search for the previous episode on annual perfections and you'll find a video or an audio podcast on that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one technique that will activate, activate one house per year. 
And if you're in a second house perfection year, then you may see the topic of finances becoming more prominent in that year in different ways, for better or worse. Totally. Like, and those ages, I think 25, 37, 49, 61. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. What's, well, yeah. Uh, one, well, I was do- and why? 13. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I was like, yeah, you might get your job at 13. Well, because first house years are always birthdays that are multiples where your age is a multiple of 12. Yeah. So you could just add one to that. Yeah. Yeah. So they're good money years. So perfection. Well, they're money years. They're money. I should say they're good years to focus on money and they will be good or bad depending on your second house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that example I gave of Lisa Marie Presley earlier when she turned, literally the day she turned 25, she she moved into a second house perfection year and then she inherited like $100 million from her dead father because the ruler of the second of finances was in the eighth house of inheritance. Mm. Uh, and technically, actually, the ruler of the eighth house is also in the second. So there was a lot going There's on there. There's a lot yeah. of interplay. So um, perfections. Another one that we talked about on an episode this past summer was activating the houses by looking at eclipses. Mm-hmm. If you have like eclipses, if the nodes, if the north and south node, north or south node move into your second house, then that's going to set up a year and a half or two year period where you're going to have a series of um, solar and lunar eclipses bouncing back and forth between your second house and your eighth house. Yes. And often that can also show a greater focus and a sort of pivotal time for matters pertaining to your second house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Generally, south node will be less good for money than north node. Yeah. They, it'll do other stuff than just good, bad, but south node is generally not awesome for money. It is not. North node may bring some pains in the ass, but it'll also generally bring some money with it. A little it's bit of accumulation. Yeah. That's North Node in the second and South Node in the second we're talking about. Yeah. 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 So people can go back and listen to that episode from, I think it was like July, where Lisa and I went through and did delineations of eclipses falling in the different house pairs and some of the ways that that works out. Is there anything else about the second house we should touch on before we move on? You guys noted like gifts, like how a person gives or charity. Those are two significations that are definitely relevant in terms of the second house. Yeah, I think in the context of it's doing something with your money, Mm -hmm. basically. Um, Yeah, I mean, and I know it seems like we've just sort of stayed primarily sort of on the one topic, but it is. it really is about everything to do with money is is second house. There's some money stuff in the eighth, and when we do part two, we'll talk about specifically how that works, but- the primary place I look in the chart to understand a client's financial patterning is the second house and and any associated yeah. planets or configurations. There. Yeah, money and and material goods in the person's life. Absolutely. Even to the extent like we talked before about do you hoard or are you minimalist, but how much you care about that as well. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, it's it's similarly to the first house, it's the psychological approach to what priority you place on money or not, and then what that can kind of lead to in terms of your actions and your accumulation gain or or loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's yeah. worth owning? What's, that's a beautiful, yeah, that's right. You did say that, didn't you? Great turns of phrase, always. Definitely. All right, let's transition into talking about the third house and the significations or the meanings of the third house. Uh, so the third house is a cadent house. It is the house that is said to be the joy of the moon or where the moon rejoices. And it's called in Hellenistic astrology, it's called the place of goddess. Mm. I actually completely forgot to mention that the name of the second house is called the gate of Hades. Uh, so, not as poetic, but I mean, well, it is poetic, but not in such a uplifting way, perhaps. 
Yeah, we'll skip over that and let people. It, it doesn't have a lot to do with the practical significations no. of the house. Whereas, yeah, I I think one of the things I loved learning about the third house from a traditional astrology perspective was that it was called the house of the goddess. Yeah, well, and yeah, that, and that the, the idea of there. like goddess is there and present in like Hellenistic and ancient astrology that there's this um, sort of taking into account of both principles. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was a wild polytheistic medley. Yes. At the, at those times. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the original that's the original context of astrology as far as, you know, what people were doing. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's impressive that astrology made it through as many years of monotheistic cultures as it did, but those are not the uh the birth soil. No. Sure. All right. So the third is the place of goddess. Um and the third is, in terms of just basic significations from more of a traditional standpoint with little modern thrown in, uh, the significations are primarily one, siblings. That's always been a traditional signification of the third house for about 2,000 years now. Uh, but also short trips or journeys, uh, school or education, and finally communication as the fourth major sort of basic okay. foundational signification. Yeah, when I learned about the joys of the planets, it helped me understand the short trips thing a little bit better because knowing the moon is such a fluctuating planet that she's mm. changing shape and changing form. She's always kind of in movement and motion from one night to the next. She's different or she's in a different part of the sky, you know, much faster than the other planets. That helped me understand and the kind of tr trips or travel that happen in the third house is it's not necessarily the life-changing once in a world, once in a lifetime sort of thing. It's it's that, as I'm going to talk about neighborhoods and things like that being in the third, but it's all that sort of busyness of back and forward and round and round, um, which seems to be very relevant with the moon's connection there. Yeah, absolutely. I um, when I teach the third house, um, I generally tell people to think about everywhere that they go routinely. Yes. So the gas station that you go to, the grocery store that you go to, the websites that you go to, everything that's part of your regularly scheduled program, like that's the terrain of the your third, third house. Right. The word your routine. Neighborhood. Yeah. Yep. Is like something that is familiar to you that you do on a regular basis. Yeah. And the people that show up there, and it is um, one of the more social uh, socially oriented houses, um, you know, as is suggested by it being describing siblings, right? Yes. Who are just kind of always around when yes. you're growing up. They're just kind of always around. <laughs> Whether you like them or not. <laughs> right. And yeah, and yes. that's that's what the, the third house is a lot of stuff that's always around. Always there, always around. Yeah. And there, there was, I remember, and I can't repeat the source, so I'll have to check this afterwards. But I remember sort of an obscure reference to friendship in the third house. It's not the primary place of friendship, but I have seen it associated in some um, older texts with uh, the third house. So there's also that, um, like the people, the peopling or the interactive quality. Yeah. In Valens, Vadius Valens in oh, the second century, he says <laughs> that the third house that. and the 11th house are two of the primary places of siblings. Of siblings and of friends. Or, or, sorry, friends. Uh, two of the primary right, places siblings. of friends. And I think it's got something to do with they're the two houses that make a sextile aspect to the first house. Yeah. Right. Um, and and that, that's the kind of, you know, a, a good friend is going to have that sextile energy of just like a sweet companion. Right. And in the Thema Mundi, the, um, the rising has a sextile. Yeah. 
um, to Venusians, or the sun has a sextile to Venus and the moon has a sextile to, to Venus, Venus as well. Yes. There's a strong association of sextile and Venus. Um, and then both of them trine the seventh, which is the primary other person or other people house. Yes. The third and the 11th being trined to the seventh. Mm -hmm. Got it. You know, they, they make kind of a social triad. But yeah, with the third, the third is more casual in its uh, relationship to relationships. Yes. Just like with It's your, like incidental. Right. With your siblings, you just find yourself there. Yeah. And you, you know, you can have all sorts of different relationships to siblings. Mm -hmm. You can be close. You can be far You can be apart, strange. You yeah. Can, and, you know, usually sibling relationships go through phases, mm -hmm. right? Um, but they're just around. Yeah. And the, the types of things that you experience in the third, it's just, it's what's around. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I use the third for is figuring out like what is what is normal for a person? What is life, you know, what is the, yeah, what is the normal, is normal a grind? Is it a float? Mm -hmm. um, is it a rush, et cetera, et cetera? I have Saturn in the third. And so I always end up isolated. <laughs> <laughs> And barely knowing any of my neighbors, um, and you oh my know, gosh, of course, where your house is right now, but it's, it's very sad. But it's always been that way, yeah. Um, and also very tightly scheduled, yes. Right with Saturn there, yes. Um, I have a, a good friend who has a very has a beautiful Jupiter in Pisces in, in the, the third, third house, and he's just always floating around and having adventures and just bumping into really interesting people just and. Randomly, and, like he's the kind of person yeah. that just finds prizes on the ground when he walks around his neighborhood and oh always knows gosh. everything about his neighborhoods. Mm. That's um, pretty damn fine. Yeah, and so, and in both of those cases, for both siblings and neighborhoods, it's like there's some people whose lives those are not just those are not major topics or they're not significant areas in a major crucial way. But there's other people's lives occasionally where you'll come across them and their siblings play. A major role in the person's life, or the person's neighborhood is somehow a dominant like feature for some reason of their life. If they're like the head of the like neighborhood watch or something mm -hmm. like that, yeah. or uh, I know a guy in my complex that like organizes all of the like parties like every month or every other month for like all the residents in the building or what have you. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's, that's totally a third house thing. That's like, yeah, Mr. Benefic in the third. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. I just want everybody to, you know, get to know each other and have a really good time. Yeah. We're just to get along and yeah. Yeah. And so one thing that's fun is not every time, sometimes you need to go deeper into a chart, but a lot of time, if you have brothers or sisters, you can see them very clearly in what's in the third yeah. uh, or what's ruling the third. Like, I have a brother who's a Capricorn, Saturn ruled. I yes. have Saturn in the third. Yes. In an earth sign. Yeah. Um, done. Very easy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you have lots of siblings, right, Kelly? I do. I have um, a Venus ruled third house. And then Venus is, so I've got Taurus there and I've got Venus in um, Capricorn in my chart. So there's a lot of earth energy and just a lot of siblings. Like it's, it is very pleasant um, in the sense, and I think I've probably said this before, where I do get along well. I've got five siblings and I've got a couple of brothers and I've got three sisters. And of course we didn't all get along when, can you imagine like four teenage girls growing up in a house and, you know, we had one bathroom, all that sort of craziness. Uh, but we all do genuinely enjoy each other's company. 
like my siblings will have even the ones that are all in Sydney together will have like pasta Sundays where they voluntarily get together once a month and have these big meals and all the nieces and nephews mm. are there now. And um, about half my siblings live in Sydney and the other half don't. Uh, but when we're all together, you know, at Christmas, it, we just genuinely are like, right, what are we doing? Where are we going? And it just, it, as you said, like they're just there and you just fall into it, but we fall into it in kind of a Taurus way where it's pleasant and there's usually far too much food, um, which is a bit of a Taurus thing. Indeed. Uh, yeah. But it's, and it goes on for hours, you know, because that's also Taurus. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's see. I don't want to clip short the sibling part. Maybe we can turn that. But yeah, I, but there is, yeah. There, there, the, another part of it, which I would say that we're participating in, um, is the third how part of what we encounter on a regular basis is not just people and pieces of land, um, but also what information, um, or what sources of information we um, consistently intersect with. Yeah. And so a website that you visit every day, mm -hmm. that's, that's part of your third house. Um, a magazine that arrives oh, yeah. every week or every month. It's a regularly scheduled thing that you yeah. intersect with. And the, you know, or it could be a podcast. And then you, you become to. familiar with the authors or presenters of that. They're like, oh, like, you know, I think of um, some of the some of the memes which have been uh, mobilized in reference to the astrology podcast. Yes. With someone's like feels like they're hanging out with us. Yeah. Right. Like that's the third house. Like, oh, they're just around. We're just there. Yeah. Right. When we see the beautiful pictures of people with us on the TV and their their children are like playing and the foreground. Sure. Right. And so it's not it's just, every it's not yeah. every piece of communication. It's not every um thing that a person writes, but it is um your regularly scheduled programming. Yeah. And, and I do love magazines. When you said that, I was like, oh my gosh. I do love a good magazine. So just you said it already on the recording that yeah. uh, you associate Austin the third house with periodicals. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That was one of the Well, and I'm thinking mail too in general. Like not the boring mail. Like I don't know. Maybe I'm just projecting myself into this. I love like sending sweet cards in the mail. That's something I do for my friends. I have Saturn in the third. You do not send sweet cards to your friends. You, you might send dead <laughs> birds or something. <laughs> I'm not sure. That would be kind of exciting. <laughs> you would like that, right? I mean, if somebody sent me like a cool bird or other skeleton or animal, I'd like as long as there, there was there's bones actually, involved. I thought I think I saw on the internet there was like a skeleton of the month club oh, where they like send you some sort of There's a lot of things of the month club. Yeah. Um skeleton of the month club is the one that, that appeals you, to that me. That appeals to you. The one that appeals to me is the beautiful stationery of the month. So I could send more Venus things in the mail. <laughs> Our third houses are so different. <laughs> what about you, Chris? Uh my third house? Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to think. Well, one of the things that's funny is in terms of communication as a third house thing that we were talking about last night was how uh, when Uranus went through my first house, literally very shortly after it it went through back around circa 2010, I think that one of the first solar returns I had was my birthday, November 2010. And I randomly took over this podcast out of nowhere, which was traditional astrology radio. And it began a almost decade long transit of Uranus through my third house, which ended up being me sort of very quickly learning um, a bunch of new technology and how mm. to adapt technology and communicate things and changing my communication style. Yeah. Um, somewhat unexpectedly, but pretty rapidly over the course of a decade. That's been uh, huge. To yeah. turn yeah. into this, basically. Yeah, and, and now we're like sitting here in a studio together. It's quite amazing, actually. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. and from a Uranus level, like really changing what a normal day looks like mm -hmm. because your balance of activities is really different mm. than when you were just reading charts and doing research. Right. Yeah, definitely. You almost became like a radio star in astrology. Me? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. That's how I often think of you as like yeah, that makes the, sense. the morning drive-by, like whatever the prestigious radio slot is. I, I'm not that familiar with it, but that and that was all your Uranus in your third house transit, essentially. Well, yeah. And I think yesterday Austin was pointing out that it's not, it's like the ruler of my third yes. is also the ruler of my 10th. So that's tied into career. And that's one of the other ways the houses can be tied together is if the when same planet share. rules rules two different houses, it will tend to bind those topics together in some way. Yeah. Right. Because when you stimulate the planet, you get results in both in areas. In both areas. And yeah. especially if the planet is got a good has got an aspect yes. to both, then and can see both really easily, then it's yes. you know, it's yes. pretty easy. Well, yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah. So it makes sense that you would do a lot of third house things in the context of your career because it shares the same planetary rulership as the tenth. And the way Mars is placed in your chart, it aspects both the tenth and the third, if I've remembered everything correctly. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. yeah, which helps that helps Mars take care of both. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it I I don't know, I just w thinking about how your career has unfolded, it's like, oh, it makes complete sense that there's the third house. Well, so speaking of careers, um third house and writing, I I think oh, we've got to writing, writing a column yeah. is um totally a third house activity, like yeah. writing an astrology column. Yes. Um, we're like, it's it's literally a weekly grind, mm -hmm. um, maybe monthly, maybe yeah. yearly, but yeah. we, you know, like it's, it's, it's timed. It's not a, yes. one, it's not um, a novel that you put out and then, and then that done. is what it is. So yeah. it's like that, that which is written with some regularity as opposed to maybe more of a ninth house thing, which is like that thing that you write once and put mm -hmm. it out there like a book. Or a dissertation, which is literally one thing. One right. thing. Well, yeah, because if you we're talking about periodicals and things that are familiar and part of your regular life, you know, if you've got a great um, horoscope column that you like to read, you are reading it every week usually, or it comes out in your favorite magazine once a month, and that's you know, it becomes a regular part of your routine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, both for the creator and, and for the, the reader. Yeah, for the reader. And so, the one consumer. thing I want to I make sure to get in here is this is cadent. This house is Caden, and as I said before, Caden houses will um, often, the result is that the planet in them has less energy, and that is because doing all this third house stuff takes a ton of energy. It takes a ton of energy to write a regular column. It takes a ton of energy to do a regular podcast. All of that, you know, all of the energy that you spend running errands in your yes. neighborhood, that doesn't, like, if, if you ask the same planet to also... Um, run your career. Yeah, that planet's a little bit tired. Yes, right. Yeah. Um, and it, it's not. Um, it's not a kill shot on that planet. It's not like this not horrible affliction. Thing. Yeah, but this is part of the idea that Caden planets have less energy left over to do stuff because mm -hmm. they're they've got a ton of stuff to do. Yeah, and in the third, it's just busy, 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 and it's. You know, it's That's busy, busy for point. different reasons in the other Caden houses, but in the third, there's just a ton to do. Mm. Sure, um, and another point before we move on that 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 just came up conceptually is the idea that and we didn't touch on this so much in the first house and the second house but it comes up here which is that the houses have polarities and there's a real interaction sometime or like two sides of the same coin with 
um, a house and what it signifies and the opposing house or the mm -hmm. house opposite to that. Yes. So like first house representing self and seventh house representing other, second house representing like your finances or your money versus eighth house representing the money that belongs to others. Mm -hmm. And then here we were talking about like you're making the the difference between like something you write regularly or a periodical versus something you do once. You write once like a dissertation or a book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I've I've been kind of biting my tongue on the other houses. Right. Um. It, it, it's perfectly relevant, but I think once we get to seven, then we can. Yeah. Do those distinctions are so clear. Mm. Um. But yeah. 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 Yes. And you mentioned writing here, and I think you know the idea that the third house is about communication. Mm -hmm. It's about language. It's about your ability to express the ideas inside you or. Some of the challenges with that. So, there's so a what do you what do you all think about the idea that the third house represents a person's, uh, or you can see within the third house a person's experience of primary education? Yeah, yeah. I, I think primary. I mean, that that's pretty consistent. I think yeah, like so elementary school, I guess middle school here, right? And I mean. Would you put high school in that, and then university and post high school is all ninth house? That that or that's often what's said. Yeah, I'm very comfortable with ninth house being further education. Yeah, um, you know, generally that which is intentionally sought. Yes, um, versus like what you just end up in. Yeah, I've also seen the fourth um, as a person's primary education that that's their foundation. Okay. Yeah. I think is interesting. I've ended up um, learning the most about astrology during my two fourth house perfections that I've had since I was really into it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I just wanted to throw no, that. But it's common with the third to say, ah, oh, yes, primary school. Primary. I mean, I think well, that's why the third house is primary school, though, because it's associated with the the angular triad right next to the fourth, and it does play that more foundational role. Versus once you finally get to university in the ninth, you you have that angular triad that's leading into and preparing you for your 10th house career where you're much more directly oftentimes at that point going towards whatever your vocation is going to be as opposed to just sort of laying a foundation of the basics. Yeah, I have I have no qualm with ninth house further education. That one I'm very comfortable with. Yeah. I just see primary education as much if not more in the 4th than I do in the 3rd. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. The, and the other piece then thinking about the third and ninth as like places of learning or teaching or what have you that I do see is, uh, you know, if somebody is an adult and wants to teach something that they know, if there's a strong emphasis on the third house, they will tend to teach more beginner, introductory, foundational type material. Whereas mm -hmm. if they have an emphasis on the ninth house, they might teach more of that um, more advanced or more kind of senior or secondary, like that idea of going on from the topic. I don't mm. know if you guys have seen anything yeah, along those lines. I would agree with that. Yeah. Specialized. Yeah, specialized versus the introductory sort of stuff with the third. I had a, a client chart that I've used as an example where uh, she had the ruler of the tenth and the third, and she taught uh, primary school. She was like a she became yeah. she was a teacher of. Basically, a teacher. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Then she taught in a primary school. That's yeah. yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Um. So teaching, yeah. communication. Do we talk about short distance travel? 
We talked a little bit in the context of the moon and the idea of the the changeable. We did you did talk about routine travel. Yeah, just doing all the you know doing yeah. your chores, like doing your, your commute, errands. your errands. I mean, run to the store. And then one thing that when this was first presented to me was the idea of the third house is it's your regular travels. That's mm. how you get to and from work. If your job, and this does happen a little bit in Australia because we're a bit mad with our travel, people um, can live in Sing- can live in Sydney and work in Singapore. So their regular travel is technically an international trip, but they go there on Monday and they come back on Friday. I bet they have ninth and third stuff. They would have a lot of ninth and third stuff, if, but if that really gets you keep thinking. keep doing that for a long time. Yeah, if they do it like for years. Um, there is this, there does become this ambiguity sometimes in astrology about what is the, dis- when do we draw the line draw between the line? like short di- distance versus long distance, which has become more of an issue in modern times as- We travel like, further and yeah, more frequently. It's easier and you can travel further and whatever more regularly Yeah. versus in ancient times where um, you know taking a trip outside of your city was like a major Huge deal. Huge thing, yeah. And you know, to some degree, a planet that's in a house will- usually affect the opposite house. Yeah. Like all of Firmicus's house delineations um, involve not only what's going on in that house, but some of the significations are clearly whether it's damaging or supporting the opposite, the opposite. house. Yeah. Right. So yeah, we, we did talk a little bit, yeah, about the travel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's yeah, see. short trips, siblings. Oh, and just a little bit about siblings. Um, I definitely see um, sibling-esque relationships like if um you know if there's someone that you would refer to like oh how close are you with her oh she's my she's like my sister she's like a sister to me yeah people like that will pop up when the third house gets activated by timing techniques Mm -hmm. i remember i went into a third house perfection some years ago and um within like the first month my brother moved within like 10 miles of me for the first time in a decade and I ended up um, randomly seeing two other people that I would regard as um, who I would have described as being like brothers to me who just showed up and were immediately there in my life in yeah. a way that wasn't true for the preceding decade. Um, and so you get sibling-esque relationships, yes. which is yeah. something we recognize in language, um, you know, in English with the way we describe our relationship to certain people anyway. Yeah. That they're like a brother or like a sister to me. Yeah. 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 That clo- uh, a way of acknowledging the closeness that you might feel. And I think that ties it back into what we were saying earlier, Kelly, and citing Valens, who associates the third with friends in addition to the 11th. Yeah. And that's probably part of the tie Part in of there. that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one more thing on the, the joy of the moon, right? So, if, Or the house of the goddess and the joy of the moon. If we're looking at, um, what should we say, patterns of religious or spiritual observance, um, in the ninth, we have temples, like very special places dedicated to divinity. Mm-hmm. In the third, you know, we're celebrating, you know, if we're recognizing divinity, we're recognizing it in the context of everyday life. Oh, beautiful. We would be doing yeah. like, oh, I don't know, like full moon celebration. Like let's yeah. do a ritual every full moon. Yeah, or every opposed, Friday or something. As opposed to let's do the pilgrimage. You the know, one off once in a lifetime. Yeah, let's like crawl 50 miles and then yeah. do special ceremony once a year. Um, you know, the third house, like that's, yeah, that, okay, well, it's, it's every Friday is Venus's day. Or, yeah. you know, if you look at, 
the majority of neo-pagan traditions, which tend to be more goddess-centric. It's like, oh yeah, every new moon, every yeah. full moon. Um, and so you have that kind of regular observance. That consistency. Yeah, of divinity yeah. within everyday life as opposed to going outside of everyday life to do something special and holy. I love that. Yeah. Because there is a little bit of a... I guess there is that magical component to the third house there with the goddess. It's sort of that um, that idea. Of, and also, too, you know, one thing we didn't say in the conceptual part is that, you know, the houses we're talking about in this first video, one to six, are sort of in the, the lunar sort of sphere of the chart, the nighttime part of the chart. And they have this sort of more, you know, there's some physical qualities to it, but there's also that, I guess, just bringing it in in that regular way. Yeah, when yeah. they're beneath, they're beneath the earth. Yeah, right. They're um, they're beneath the horizon. You can never see a planet in the third house. No, right. Most of the houses, first one through six, even part of seven, are below the horizon and yeah. underneath the earth, and were associated with like the lunar sphere of the moon. Whereas most of the houses seven through twelve are above the earth in the top part of the chart and are visible and can seen or, and are associated with the um, solar sort of hemisphere of the chart. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, did you guys talk? Did we talk about extended family beyond siblings? Because that's something that not. comes up like with aunts and uncles and yeah, that yeah. comes up with third house as well. Mm -hmm. I feel like pretty frequently, and that's something I feel relatively confident about in terms of. It's like parents are fourth house, uh, children are definitely fifth house, mm -hmm. seventh house is like your partner. Um, but other types of extended relatives do come up in, in the third house in okay. addition to just siblings. Yeah. I usually do um, uh, secondary houses. For yeah, those. like derived. Yeah, yeah. Like if I do, you know, I'll do third from. Um, Third from the fourth for my aunts. Yes. Or I'll do fourth from the fourth for my mom's mom, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything else in the third that we should touch on before we move on? Like, I feel like there's something, but I don't know what it is. Um, I feel like we've hit the main points, but. Well, I would just say um, transits to the third um, oh, yeah. impact your day to day experience. Mm -hmm. um, and they tend to deliver things which are. Um, Less permanent than they may mm -hmm. deliver to other houses, because the like you said, Kelly, like you opened with the the, moon. the, the third is in flux. It's like <clears throat> constant flux. Like maybe you know there's a benefic there, and you write an astrology column, and you like nail a couple of them, but yeah. like the next one's got to come out. You're only as good as your last column. Yeah, yeah, and last so, innings. Yeah, yeah, and so the to a certain degree that can be um, less than ideal for a benefic because you know something good happens but then you know it changes but then yeah um, the there are some authors and structures that like um, benefics in the third be or excuse me like ma malefics in the third because yeah that was a bad thing but then it changes it changed into something different yeah it wasn't a bad thing that held on yeah it was like yeah, yeah that happened and then moving on yeah. So things tend to be less permanent in the third than, mm -hmm. say, in the first or the second. That makes me, that reminds me that the third house is treated really ambiguously in the Hellenistic tradition for like the first thousand years of Western astrology because it's usually treated as like the weakest of either the weakest of the good houses mm -hmm. or the weakest of the bad houses or the, the least bad of the bad houses or the least good of the good houses yeah. because it's a, it's a cadent house. So it's a cadent or declining house. And it also, even though it has an aspect to the ascendant, to the rising sign, 
it only has a weak um, sextile aspect, which is the weakest of the good aspects, mm -hmm. and it's an inferior aspect that goes backwards in the order of signs as mm. opposed to the 11th house, which has the superior sextile, yeah. which is much stronger yeah. and, and ties it more closely or more firmly favorably into the rising sign and the ascendant. Mm -hmm. So the third is sort of like weakly good in terms of the good houses. Yeah, which means I think in practice that it really depends on what's going on in the third, whether it's going to be useful or Absolutely. not. Absolutely. It doesn't like, it's it's not a win or a lose button. No. Sure. But in, in yeah, and it's not, it's not like a bad house in terms of like the sixth or the eighth or the twelfth. No. But it's not one that's going to stand out as being hugely positive, um, even though it tends more positive than negative. All right, I think that's good for the third house. Um, any ruler stuff related to the third? I'm trying to think of different permutations of that, like somebody that has the ruler of. We were just talking about somebody that has the ruler of the third and like the second, and it tied in like financial matters with their siblings. Mm -hmm. So there's like different ways that you can see connections between. I got one. Okay. The ruler of my third is in my 10th, and mm -hmm. my brother edits this podcast. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty good. And it's Mercury. Well, and also because your third is Virgo. Yeah. So it's Mercury. He's doing some technical stuff. Yeah. Well, not just this podcast, but also like all of your recordings and classes and other stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I've ended up working as- So uh, you and your brother work together. As my 10th my house has matured, mm. um, that's brought us to do projects together. Yeah. yeah. Of a Mercury nature. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, and you'll see similar permutations like that depending on where the ruler of the third house is located and yeah. um, that potentially tying the topics of the third house into different areas of the person's life. Absolutely. I mean, um, I've, I know someone who has the out of sect malefic ruling their third house and they have an estrangement with their siblings. So, mm -hmm. that, you know, obviously there can be some productive uses, but also. Um, you know, people do have more difficult experiences with their siblings. So yeah, and that's really important to bring up because now we're getting into once we get past the first house and the second house, we start getting into other people <coughs> in the native's life mm -hmm. and the role that they play. Yeah, and whether that role is a supportive, helpful role, like that you kind overtly. of enjoy. Yeah. yeah, if you want more of it, or versus understanding that that's not always the case for all people, and and sometimes people's experience of different specific family members or close people in their life tends more negative, or maybe they have some particularly negative experience, or mm -hmm. um, that person becomes somehow a hindrance in the person's life, yeah. or something like that. Like, let's say a person that you know had a falling out with siblings, or we'll go through other family members as we go through. But yeah. that's important to keep in mind that sometimes, and it's not just, even though in modern astrology, they tend to conceptualize it as like different compartments of the native psyche and how they, what their attitude towards, let's, let's say like siblings is, Sometimes it really just is what your, the orientation of your siblings or their attitude towards you is. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes different parts of the chart that represent different mm -hmm. people in your life represent objective situations and scenarios that you experience from that person that may not necessarily be your, your fault per se. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It might be nothing that you've done, but it's how they act towards you or circumstances outside your control. Yeah. Sure. Well, and it's usually there's an inner outer mirror. Like yeah. if you grow up with an older sibling that's always kicking your ass, 
then you are not you are going to be negatively inclined towards them and that you know i mean like that these things co-create yes um but yeah it's as much outside of you as it, as is, it is inside and sometimes yeah. sometimes it's much easier to see in one place or another but yeah, it's not all inside you. It's all inside no. your life. Yes, that's a better right? point. It's not all inside your being. Sure. All right. Um, well, I think that's pretty good for the second, uh, third house. Mm-hmm. Why don't we transition into the fourth house? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fourth house in Hellenistic astrology was known as the subterranean place. Uh, in terms of significations or just basic significations of the fourth house, uh, the fourth is an angular house. It's said to be um, the primary house that signifies the parents, the home, family in general, and the private life of the native, especially in contrast to the 10th house, which represents the public life. All right. Does that sound like a pretty good set of significations to you guys? Yeah. Solid. Pretty agreeable, not too much controversy? No. I would would add um, property. Uh, real estate as a primary signification, but other than that, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, home and family are two of the primary. Have always been two of the primary significations. The fourth house and our two relatively uncontested significations. Mm-hmm. So, what does that mean in like a actual delineation or in a proper context of looking at a person's birth chart? What does that matter? Yeah, I mean, I, it allows you to describe the type of home environment that they may have experienced when they're a child growing up, because I think you can also get a little bit of childhood sort of qualities or experiences out of the fourth. Definitely. And uh, so you can describe that. You can even just using the element of the sign on the fourth or the modality can tell you a little bit about the type of things that are important in their home. Is technology important? Is access to nature important? Is having a home that um, is out on land important or is having a home that's more connected to community and people and transport. So the kinds of things, you know, within and around your home that you might prefer, you can get out of this. Um, And of course, the family, general connections with your parents and, you know, positive or negative, of course, it can go either way. Yeah. I like that you mentioned early life stuff because certainly um, that idea of like nature versus nurture and and the idea Mm -hmm. of that oftentimes the environment that a person grows up in in the in the early formative years of their life has a very foundational impact in many ways on who they become as a person later on or it can at least yeah yeah absolutely so what is your foundation in life uh, what um, was your early home life like and what was your family life like early on or mm-hmm. not just early on but also as a continuing theme in your life like are your parents um is that a supportive area of your life or is there some way in which that's not a supportive area? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you see a person's attitude towards support and nurturance, mm-hmm. um, which they will replicate or, mm, how should we say, act in relationship to later yeah. on. You know, like what is it? People are, you know, if we think about the the word home, like what does home mean? Mm. Home means physical structures and shelter, um, but it also means emotional dynamics um, and every uh, planets which are in the fourth and the planet which rules the fourth um, describes that, it impacts that, like what kind of dynamics a person deals with. 
Um, and you may not do exactly what your parents did, but what you do is relative yeah. to how you were, you know, um, a lot of people are like, oh, I just want to provide, um, I want to provide what I didn't have as a kid, yeah. which is, you know, which is the negative space of the, you know, the, the pattern that you had when you were growing up. Yeah, it's fundamental. Um, and planets which are in the fourth um, have a an impact, I would say, on a person's emotional baseline. Mm, yeah. You know, um, if you grew up in a family that fought all the time, then, you know, when, when events happen or you get in conflict with someone, you'll reference that. If you um, grew up in a family where nobody ever fought – then that's your emotional baseline. And mm. so it'd be weird for you to be around people who process things through conflict. Through conflict. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's time to go into this, but I, already I can hear some people as you're bringing up things like your emotional baseline, immediately starting to think of cancer and starting to make arguments about, well, why isn't the fourth house associated with cancer? But maybe it's worth stating that you can get to some of those places without necessarily going there, even if occasionally we do see overlaps between mm -hmm. the signs of the zodiac in like certain houses. Yeah. Well, I would say not cancer, but I would say the moon mm -hmm. can give you information about a lot of the topics that the fourth house comments yeah. on. Mm -hmm. That's different than saying that the fourth house is cancer. Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. That's an important distinction to make that. The topics that are connected to the houses, you will sometimes find information about those same topics via a specific planet in the chart. So you can have your fourth house, which tells you about your childhood. You can also look at your moon, and those two things can be, you know, totally different in the chart, but they'll each add up to the story yeah, they're of that. Co-significators for a given topic. Exactly. Yeah. So you can have a planet that signifies a topic and a house. Right. And so yeah, yeah that works for um and that's part of why the 12-letter alphabet thing um, worked at all is it's okay for certain houses. Mm. It's um, bl it's blatantly useless for other houses. Like the you know Mars is not the first house. No, and like well my joke no. my joke is like Mars is only the significant of the first house if you're an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, and to bring up another similar one because we're ragging on one that's like a a modern you know conceptual mm. structure but to rag on a more quote-unquote traditional one in like lily you see this weird model where they assign saturn to the first house and then in descending chaldean order then jupiter to the second mm -hmm. and mars to the third and so on and so forth and i feel like that's another one where even though you occasionally will see like an overlap between maybe one of the significations of the planets and one signification of the house i don't think that's otherwise a good model to use and I don't think that was one of the original models and I, I'm still wondering at what point that was introduced. I mean I found it recently in Abu Mashar, but that's the earliest author that I can find it in so far and I have no idea where he got it from in like the eighth or ninth century. Yeah, that's terrible. That's so is that a model that you you guys use? I would say that that's way worse than signs equal planets. Sure. Yeah. I would say that too. Yeah. But it would look to me, it was the first way that I was told about planets being connected to the houses because I was learning um, from someone who was very steeped in the lily tradition. So I did get taught that. And there was a little bit of crossover, like the sun fourth, if you use father down there, mm -hmm. Venus in the fifth. And it just so happens that that's where she has her joy. Her so joy, there's, right. Like it's like 
that's just sort of picking up on something else. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, getting the um, joys of the planets or just understanding the, the essence of each house was much more useful than that system for me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess um, the moon could be a significator of the seventh if you're really into your mom. Yeah. Yes. If you're Oedipus, then yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Freud would be happy. It's, it's getting late in the night and the Oedipus jokes are already starting. Yes. All right. Um, so family, home and living situation. Um, and I think living situation, just to pick up on that phrase for a second, that's very common like in modern, like your home environment where you live, who's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What were you going to Sorry. I don't know. Keep going. Oh, that's okay. Well, and so one way to use this that's very simple and happens all the time is when planets transit your fourth, um, stuff happens around your house. Yeah. 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 Who living you, situation. Totally. So here's an example. Um, so Mars was very recently in my fourth. And when it got to the degree where it exactly squared my ascending degree, um, we woke up and the stove or not the, yeah, the, the stove top, which is like a weird electric stove top that we don't like, um, was just beeping and we couldn't turn it on to heat things and we couldn't turn off the beep. The beep. And so Mars, the thing that's supposed to make fire, um, wouldn't make fire, but was just making noise and wouldn't shut up for hours. Mm. Right. And so it's like, that was an event which occurred in my home. Yes. To do with the Mars thing. Right. I, uh, I had Uranus ingress into my fourth house earlier this year and then suddenly moved. Uh, so in terms of my, for the first time in 10 years, so it was mm -hmm. just like move, that's, but that's like major, major. Um, and it was a sudden and rapid move that happened somewhat unexpectedly with, which are also Uranus type significations. And then weirdly, not long after that, also my, uh, my mom decided to move to like sell her house and move for the first time in like 20 years. Wow. So sometimes when you have like major fourth house transits going on, it can be like your home and living situation. Sometimes it can be like your parents. Mm. Other times it can be like both. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Fourth house stuff will stir up, will stir up family drama. If yes. there's family drama to be stirred. Yes. Sure. Family secrets if it's Pluto triggers or uh the uranus is like the surprises but yeah all the everything to do with family yeah yeah um and sometimes also qualifying or describing the native's parents and their relationship with their parents mm -hmm. and sometimes like how the parents act in the native's life and whether they're a positive like supportive influence mm -hmm. or whether uh, the parents are somehow like a negative influence or in some instances like even if the parents are not around um like in some instances like i've seen instances of where the natives parents uh didn't want them and like gave them up for adoption immediately and that being a major factor in the birth chart of just like not knowing who the parents were and mm -hmm. having a sort of sense of of searching for that as part of their life yeah mm -hmm. um in different yeah, different permutations of that depending on planets, what planets are in the fourth house or what the ruler of the fourth house is doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And for uh, it also has a lot to do with um, property, um, for acquiring property. Uh, mm. If you know somebody who's in real estate, you know, as, a, as an agent um, or maybe somebody who does landscaping mm -hmm. or interior decorating sometimes. Yeah, all yeah. that kind of stuff. There's almost always big fourth house stuff going on. Mm. 
Yeah, I know somebody that has the ruler of the tenth and the fourth, and they um, rent out like properties. They rent out land and like and homes and stuff like that. Yeah, I know a property developer that has Jupiter in the fourth ruling the second. So yeah. they Jupiter improve the fourth, and then mm. they get second house money from it. Yeah, right. That's a great example. Um, and sometimes you'll see like funny, weird permutations. Like I think in my book, I use an example of, I think it's like Tiger Woods who has the ruler of the fourth and the eleventh, or like the ruler of the eleventh and the fourth, and he's named after like his father's friend or something like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. So there's like funny. Well, and, yeah. and so here's another example that came up recently. Um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson mm -hmm. has the ruler of the 10th in the 4th, and um, his dad and his grandpa were both wrestlers. So right. he's literally in the family business. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. I like that. So there's lots of different things. Uh, classic one that comes up pretty frequently and is a pretty easy one to spot is sometimes like ruler of the 2nd house of your home and your living situation in the ninth house of foreign places and a person who ends up moving and living abroad mm -hmm. for some significant part of their life or sometimes when the ruler of the ninth is in the fourth. Yeah, like the fourth house, ninth house associations. Yeah. yeah. So obviously we're, that's starting to drag us into other houses which we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but just giving some examples of different permutations of what, what do we mean specifically and why is the home and the living situation or the parents, how can that be relevant and very specific or concrete ways in the native's life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I would say generally um, the fourth house does well with nice planets. Yes. It's um, you know, the there are the relationship of the planets to houses is complex and varies to some degree on a chart by chart basis, but um, there are very few circumstances where you can think of a Mars or Saturnian influence being super helpful in the fourth, mm -hmm. right? Because you're not in that we're talking about a place that's supposed to be supportive and nurturing. Yes. You know, we could have a Mars in the 10th where a person, um, the 10th being what a person aspires to, and, you know, some effort and hardness is yeah. relevant there. Um, whereas the, the fourth is, it's literally the support um, for the rest of the chart. And so generally speaking, soft planets uh, do better there, or we experience soft planets as mm. more uh, beneficial there. Yeah. Uh, another meaning of the fourth house that's less relevant in modern astrology, but I've noticed is emphasized a lot in traditional astrology and I've come to think is really important is the notion of the fourth house representing generally speaking the end of matters mm -hmm. back through that diurnal rotation um, thing that you were talking about, Kelly, where the first is like the beginning and the tenth is the next phase and the seventh is uh, the winding down phase. And then finally, you reach like the midnight part at the fourth. And so sometimes it can indicate the end of the matter. And sometimes in a lot of the traditional texts, there were still associations with like death and the end of life with the fourth mm -hmm. house. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I see come up surprisingly a lot where it's the eighth house is not the only house that pertains to to death mm -hmm. uh, but the fourth house sometimes comes up as being relevant there as well yeah uh, like for example like the you know the the 27 club yes. with like mm -hmm. musicians who've like the weird number of musicians that have passed away at 27 that's actually a fourth house perfection year mm. so the fourth house is activated when you're 27 years old so it's not saying that everybody's going to die when they're 27 but <laughs> we all made it through 
Right. Yeah. Actually, I need to go back and think of that. It might have been a close one, but um, yeah. 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 So yeah, that's I, a little tidbit just to think about in terms mm -hmm. of other significations that are not commonly discussed or that people don't often talk about with certain houses, but that might sometimes be important, especially if you start thinking about them symbolically where the fourth house is the house that's furthest underneath the earth yeah. and is the most hidden and uh, yeah. I yeah. yeah, I I I do when we discuss or when I teach um inheritance, mm -hmm. um, both psychic and physical, um fourth and eighth mm -hmm. uh, is what I go to. You know, the fourth the your parents, you know, the home your parents provided is what you stand to inherit. Yes. Right? Um and with fourth, I think of fourth as like both beginning and end or origin point and eventual destination. Because whatever you have in the fourth, you know, again, you'll experience early in life. And, you know, it shapes character in a way that is um, not directly visible, but informs everything else. Like if you're coming from like a Saturn in the fourth place, like you might not see exactly where that like discipline or structure, mm. um, structural orientation, it like you might not see the origin of it, but you'll see it kind of everywhere. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, we're talking about angular houses, especially the first, but the others as well, give um, a somewhat global influence on the nativity. Like things echo out from all of the angular houses. Yeah, I think the idea of the fourth house being a base or a foundation of some kind is important, that if everything else sits on top of that, then everything else is somehow sort of permeated by or influenced <coughs> by what's in that fourth house or what you know sign or planets are connected to it. Right. Um, another topic that's really important that's more of a traditional topic and I don't see emphasized as much in modern texts, but I've really grown to see as important is the fourth house as being if the 10th house is the most public part of the chart, the fourth house is the most hidden or private part of the chart. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just your private and your home life, but it can also indicate things that are hidden somehow or things which are secret in the native's life. Mm. And so sometimes um, if you ever have to look at a chart where you're trying to qualify what would indicate that which is hidden or things having to do with secrecy, mm. sometimes fourth house placements can be where to look for that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, well, and what's interesting is the fourth is um, it's a hidden place that the native can see. The fourth is strongly configured to the rising. Yeah. Mm. The twelfth might be something that's hidden, but it might be hidden from the native. You can't see Whereas it. Whereas the fourth is like, you know, that's that's where I stash my things. Yeah. You know. My secret and I know where place. they are. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we could go into examples of that, but maybe that's sufficient for now for our purposes. Are there any other things that we want to mention about the fourth house before we move on to the fifth? Um, I would just say that of the angular houses, the fourth is um, the most emotional. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, again, because it's as a kid, right? It's yeah. the first is like, yeah, it's you and you were, you grew up, but then you, you know, you're, you're the first house your whole life. Yeah. Whereas in a lot of ways you're, um, especially subject to the conditions of the fourth when you're younger. And so planets which are there have an opportunity to impact you when you are um, very emotionally impressionable mm. and that you will tend, people will tend to carry the shape of that impression for a very long time. 
Yeah, and that makes me think of um, the idea of agency, you know, where planets in the fourth house, because they're affecting you so much when you are a child and you're not really driving your life at that point in time, you can be very affected by planets in the fourth house in a way that can feel out of control or potentially a little bit more difficult the younger you are. And then as you get older and you begin to have more agency over your life, you can contain or manage through your own choices out some of the manifestations of those planets there. Yeah. If that makes sense. It makes me think of in some modern books, like they'll use an illustration of the fourth house of like a tree. And the mm. fourth house is like where the roots of the tree are. And then the tenth house is sort of like the leaves and the top of the tree and the foliage. But yeah, absolutely. What's setting the, the basis of the foundation of that tree is the roots. Yeah. And like what are your roots and what was your foundation in life? Yeah. Yeah. And and ancestry and ancestral your family concerns, lineage. That's all yeah. fourth house. Yeah. And that's but, a funny one because when that gets activated, when you have a fourth house transit or like a perfection year, I've seen people get really um suddenly out of nowhere interested in like their ancestry and like looking up their uh, what is it like? Ancestry.com or 23andMe. Yeah, 23andMe, like yeah. doing their like their genetic um, testing, their genetic testing, and finding out that they've got like a hidden, a long lost sibling or like a half brother or something like that. Or yeah, all sorts it's, of weird. Yeah, things. Yeah, there is a lot of that. The Ancestry.com and 23andMe when people are having fourth house yeah. activations. Definitely. Yeah, really yeah. interesting. Well, and yeah, and I would say that the eighth, which is inheritance, it's usually that's um, if there's stuff in the eighth. That's what's relevant to you, but yeah. there's all there, you know, because there's all sorts of ancestral stuff that's in the, it's all there in mm -hmm. the fourth. Yeah. But it may or may not be super relevant to you. Yes. You may not inherit that uh, vast estate or um, that propensity towards alcoholism, but it's still in the fourth. It's still, in, yeah, you are still aware of it and carry yeah. that as a legacy. But yeah. And so if you see, strong eighth fourth connections that's that means that there's a lot of that that's relevant yeah that's a good one because one of the examples i use uh, in my book is of um i'm spacing out his name hemingway who yeah. has the ruler of the sixth and the fourth and he actually inherited a genetic disorder from his father's like family line mm. so when it comes to like the idea of um fourth house and lineage and literally what you're getting from your your family line or your father mm. potentially um was something that was like like a, a negative thing or like an illness yeah mm -hmm. yeah and firmicus goes wild um when talking about the fourth um in concerns to patrimony right mm. right because that was um that was a male inheriting system that he was writing in the middle of right yes. so um, and so he'll, you know, there's, it's, oh, if you've got the, if you've got this in the fourth, you'll squander your patrimony. If you right. do this, there will, you won't get shit from them. If you do this, it's going to be amazing. Or, you know, if the, this planet's here, it's going to be amazing. But yeah. He's very big on the, um, the, yes, what will happen with the patrimony. With the patrimony. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I think that's that's pretty good for the for the fourth house. What do you guys think? Yeah. yeah. It's just, well, I'd just like to underscore it's fundamental. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in addition to the specific looking at um, specific topics like parents and property, it's also just going to affect the it's going to affect the life in a somewhat global fashion, mm. sure. especially if it, if it also happens to be close to the IC. Yeah. And the only other thing is that um, it is one of the four angles and therefore it has those notions of being one of the prominent or one of the powerful places like we were talking about earlier. But of the four angles, the fourth is thought to be the the weakest of the four angles. 
the the ranking is mm-hmm. usually something like one, ten, seven, four, mm-hmm. or usually ten and one are sort of either thought to be equal in power, or there's like arguments about which one's more powerful. But it's like both of those are grouped together, then seven, then four. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I've seen four seven, but I've seen seven four more often. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, so that's good to know, and I think I think that's it for fourth house. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. All right, let's transition into talking about the next house, the fifth house. So the fifth house is a succedent house that follows after the fourth, and so it has to do with notions of that which comes after or that that which is subsequent to the fourth house. Um, in terms of significations, the fifth house is traditionally associated with children as its primary signification. Um, but also traditionally in the medieval period, especially, you start getting associations with um, since the fifth house is associated with children, the notion of like procreation gets tied into there. So the fifth eventually in the medieval and especially the Renaissance period becomes associated with sex. Uh, then also because the fifth is said to be the place where Venus has her joy and it is called the place of good fortune. Uh, in the medieval period, the fifth house becomes associated with pleasures, mm-hmm. and then eventually in modern times, it gets associated also with notions of creativity. Mm-hmm. So I think those are core fifth house significations that are relatively uh, common, at least in you know those three traditions of like ancient Hellenistic, medieval, and then modern. Uh, would you guys say those are relatively solid or not contested? I think the only contested topic is the topic of sex, which in modern astrology is usually placed in a different house in the eighth. Uh, but as you mentioned in the medieval period, they uh, had it more with the fifth house. I w- and I always think of you know Venus uh, being in her joy there and and it being the house of good fortune and the connections to the body. So the idea of just the the nice things for the body, mm-hmm. if you like. Right. Yeah. And yeah. the good things which come of it, which, which is babies, but you know, how do you get the baby in there to start with? Yeah. And there's a whole- Lots of practice. <laughs> Lots of- <laughs> uh, there's a whole there's history babies. of that behind like the assignment of sex to different houses that's really tricky. And I think I dealt with it on one episode you of the podcast. You did do an episode on that, yeah. I can't remember what episode it was, but it was like- the earliest reference I can find is actually in Valens in the second century, and he seems to associate sex with the seventh house because that's where you find the other, and that's where you find the partner, the marriage partner, mm-hmm. um, and it's also the place where the the sky and the earth are sort of like coming together. So what he says is he associates it with like intercourse or intercoupling, mm-hmm. which is probably coming out of that astronomical idea of just the sky and the earth coming together. Yeah. Um, but then eventually in the medieval period, because of the joy of Venus being in the fifth, eventually the fifth house becomes the primary place of sex, especially by the Renaissance. Uh, and then eventually in the modern period, due to the sign equals house thing, um, they start associating Scorpio, which was associated with the genitals. Mm-hmm. And then they assign through that Scorpio to the eighth house. And then the eighth house becomes the house of sex. Mm. So that that's usually what most modern astrologers associate it with. But now there's this whole debate amongst modern versus traditional astrologers and whether it should be fifth or eighth. Yeah. But I think other than that, all the other topics I think are pretty consistent for the fifth. Yeah. 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 I would just say in general with the fifth, there's, um, how do we put it? Um, creative, po- it's also associated with luck, right? yeah. good fortune. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would say that with the fifth that you see, uh, with a strong fifth, you see a person who has a very 
um, a good ability to make things how they want them to be. Mm -hmm. um, we call that creative potency, um, where you don't see the source of it. It's not like they. It's not like a bank account, right? No. But some people just have an ability to like make things go their way. Yeah. Um, you know, you could say it's a person's mojo or ashe or you know, it's whatever they're like. You know, they whatever they bring with them to situations where they can, you know, they can create the situation that they want. Yes. Right. We all have some ability to, you know, uh, to bring to situations the imprint of what we desire or how we would like them to go. Yeah. Um, and I would say that that's sort of the fifth house resource. And that, um, you know, we, and that creative potency is on display for people who do arts. Yes. You know, um, but everybody has that. It's just not everybody is acting it out or making things and showing you. In um, such a big way. You know, it's a very, it, how should we say, it can be applied in a lot of ways. You see people with fifth house, strong fifth house stuff, but who work in a corporate environment. They're usually really creative problem solvers. They're mm -hmm. like, here's a, here's a new way to do this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I would say creative potency is not a, not a bad way to put whatever that is we don't have a the good, gift of it we don't yeah. have a good term for that in english and sometimes it looks like luck yeah sometimes it looks outside in but a lot of times it's inside out well and also i think the creativity angle partially comes from like the fifth house normally traditionally for two thousand years being the primary house of children mm -hmm. which is like that which you create mm -hmm. it's literally like if you have children is a, something you you create physically um, and then you see it go out into the world and like become and live its own life. Mm -hmm. um, but then also, more metaphorically, um, artists like creating art and creating something as being a more like metaphorical sort of child in some sense. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the idea of a, a legacy of some sort, mm -hmm. um, whether it's a whether it's Michelangelo's David or Botticelli's, you know, this and that. So it's it's some kind of legacy, and it is more or less significant. You know, this topic is not relevant for all of us. We're not all meant to leave that type of legacy, but sure. for people who do have those big fifth houses. Yeah, but whatever yeah. whatever you make has some impact. That's true. Yeah, even if it's in a like a smaller way. Yeah, well, it doesn't have to be a thing that you make too. Yeah. You know, you could make an event happen. You mm -hmm. can make- You can plant ideas, yeah. Yeah, um, and yeah, and, there, and even with, like if you write a book, yeah, you're making it, but then it goes out and it gets interpreted however people interpret it. It has yep. its own, you know, it, it grows up and uh, it has it, a it life of its own. It goes out into the world. Yeah, I remember Elizabeth Gilbert talking about that when she wrote uh, after the book Eat, Pray, Love just, you know, became this own thing and she sort of had to reconcile her role in that creative process. And she basically said, you know, my job was just to write the story and then to release it into the world. And what happened to it after that with the movie and the kind of runaway success was its own, like the creative entity, you put life into something and then that life kind of breeds more life into the future, which I guess is like for your children and then grandchildren and things like that too. That's really funny because there's this whole debate with um, George Lucas, how he created Star Wars. Yeah. But he never was like happy with certain aspects of it and it just had to be, you know, get to the deadline and put it out. Yeah. But there were things that he was always not happy with. And 
despite that, it's like it's released in what 1977, and it's like hugely impactful, and tons of millions of fans love it, and becomes integrated as parts of their childhood, which they then grow very attached to, and even things that were like almost like mistakes or minor details that were errors or things that were not what he intended, they um became part of their like childhood memories and the stuff. people loved those features. Right. So what's yeah. funny though is like 20 years later, he has the money and the ability to and he goes back and he starts editing them and like updating the the graphics to make them better, like fit modern graphics and like changing things like whether Han Solo like shot first or whether the the bad guy shot first. Greedo, yeah. I believe. Right. Greedo shoots yeah. first. And the fans are outraged that he would change, change. this creation because they there's there's became this whole debate that's still ongoing for some reason, like 20 years later, about whether in creating that, whether it belongs to the fans or whether he has the right to go back and change his creation after the fact, which he as the creator believes that he does. Yeah. And would then not he won't let like the original films be screened anymore because he he doesn't like the originals He's or not whatever. In love with well them. you get into yeah. the 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 idea of like, well what does the parent owe the child? Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. And you can see that um or we could see that more recently with the Game of Thrones series mm. uh, and the Game of Thrones books, where everybody's like, "Come on, George, yeah, yeah, give it up, come get, on, finish it. Done. You you owe this, you owe this series a completion, right? Yeah, right. I don't want to talk about that. I'm still recovering from the the finale of the TV show. Just it's very disappointing. Austin just nods in agreement. Yeah, and stare thousand yard stare. All right. But yeah, I, I think the child deserved better. The child. We'll, we'll just leave <laughs> in that it. That parent, the parent. In that situation, the parent had failed the child. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. I mean, the other topic that is, I mean, maybe just to throw this little word in here is that we're talking about children. If you're looking in a chart and you want to define some of the chart's fertile potential from a physical conception perspective, that is something you would also look to the fifth house for. So fertility. Yeah. Yeah. Fertility. Well, and yeah. also like, what's your experience of being a parent? Yes. Right. Like. Yeah. Attitude to parenting. Yeah. What kind of parent are you? So, yeah. like Saturn in the fifth can sometimes, if very poorly placed, can indicate like an inability to conceive or have like difficulty having children, which yeah. could mean a, a wide range of different things. Yes. Yeah. Or yeah. a lot of times, you know, if you have Saturn in the fifth, like um, the person will be a parent later. That's what I was going to sure. say. Yeah. It can That's be limits or common. delays. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to get too specific since there's a lot of different factors exactly. that go on. And so there I don't are some other things. Out. Yeah. Because there are a few other points in the chart that you would look at. Yeah. For you got to look, sure. look at the moon. The moon look and at the Jupiter. Lord of the Ascendant. And yeah. But the the fifth but, house is one of those places. But you, sure. would, you, wouldn't do, um, an anal you wouldn't do an analysis of if and when a person was going to have kids and whether that would be easy or hard or whatever, you wouldn't do an analysis like that without the fifth. Correct. You would it, have to include you, you fifth house. You would have to do more than the fifth, but, but you would never you, leave out the It would the be fifth. incomplete and incorrect if you did not look at the fifth. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the ruler of the fifth. The ruler of the fifth. Yeah. And yeah. then the ruler of the fifth, of course, can then tie the fifth house and the topic of children into other areas of the in person's the life. Yeah. In sometimes important or dramatic ways. Yes. Um, like I'm trying to think of different permutations of that, like the ruler of the fifth and the tenth, and like the native's career is somehow tied up with their children. Mm -hmm. um, the ruler of the fifth and the eleventh, and somehow the idea of the friends are tied in with the native's children. Mm -hmm. uh, ruler of the fifth and the third, and the siblings are tied in with the children for some reason. Yeah. 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 And so, and just a simple example 
a really good friend of mine who has a bunch of kids, uh, has sun and moon in the fifth. Um, and he does lots of things, but one of the things he's really invested in and has put a ton of time and energy in is like being a really good dad Yeah, and like makes decisions about, you know, how much energy to put into professional this or whatever, like is like, mm, is that going to make me a worse dad? Yeah. Right. Like, can I be the father that I want to be? That I want to be. And so, you know, it's like, yeah, person's got sun and moon there. So that's a really important thing to him. Hugely so. Hugely so. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so important placements or a preponderance of placements in the fifth house can simply indicate something like children will be a major topic in your life mm -hmm. one way or another. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, people, um, lots of people have kids. That experience is not equally important to everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. And if it's not the most important thing to you, that doesn't make you a, doesn't mean you're bad at parenting. No. You can have people who are terrible parents, but that was a really important experience to them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you have a bunch of stuff in the fifth, like that, that, that process, um, either of, you know, um, it could be writing novels or it could be having kids, but that, that process of creating and then that going out into the world and the impact of that's really important. Hugely so. Yeah. Uh, something you brought up earlier that I want to return to really quickly is the idea because it becomes important at this point once you get to the fifth, and then it's going to become a recurring theme in at least uh, four, three or four more houses, which is um, the fifth house. Once we get to it, is the is the first house that's overtly positive and is called the place of good fortune. Yes, and in calling it good fortune, the term that was used in Greek was was touke, which means fortune or luck. And you mentioned that idea of luck, mm. um, but one part of one facet of luck that I want to mention that's really important is that which is is outside of the control of the native. So we've yeah. talked about like creativity and the creative process and that which is within your control. But there's also things in life that we have to recognize, and it's especially important to recognize when we're going through the houses. There's things that are are within the native's control that mm. they have some agency over, but there's also things in a person's life that are outside of their control that they don't necessarily have agency over, and obviously plenty of shades of gray in between. But the fifth house is one of the first houses where once you get there, when you find planets placed in the fifth house, they can have a way of improving them in a, in a qualitative manner to indicate that the topics associated with them will tend to be more fortunate uh, than if they were placed in other houses, like the sixth or the twelfth, for example. Where if you have the ruler of the of a house placed in the sixth or twelfth, it may indicate more problems or external difficulties that are outside of the person's control mm. with the topics associated with that ruler. Versus if you have the ruler of a house in the fifth house, it can indicate that just things tend to go a little bit better for that uh, planetary ruler than compared to where they could pl be placed otherwise. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And yeah. one of the uh, interesting and seemingly contradictory, but not actually contradictory things is that generally speaking, if you are in fortunate circumstances, mm. you generally have more control over your environment. Yes, that's like, true. That's the thing about good fortune actually gives you situations where you are, you have more agency. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, there's a little, there's a little bit of chicken in the egg, but. You know, if someone's like, hey, here, you don't have to worry about money anymore. You're like, oh, great. Now I can do like 30 different things that yeah. I couldn't do. Or I can do. write that book or what have you. I can have those extra children. 
Yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely like some road rising up to meet you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or if you have good health, for example, something yeah. that you can take for granted if you have yeah. it. But if you don't, that's when you realize how precious it can be. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, other fifth house topics that we haven't touched on besides. Well, so here's one thing. Um, so I've seen the fifth associated with um, students. Um, not general, not uh, not in the sense of like every student is a fifth house topic, but if you are a teacher mm-hmm. and um, you're not just like teaching a quick class, but if you have, well, let's say that you're a carpenter and you have an apprentice who you you know teach for several years, mm-hmm. that person will show up in your fifth house because you've taught them their craft. Right. Um, they're part of your legacy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And so whenever you have activities where there's, you know, any sort of real lineage, mm-hmm. which is what children are in the most literal way, yeah. um, that'll ping your fifth house significations. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. I haven't studied that a lot myself. Like you you're more in you've studied more traditions um that are where lineage is like really important mm-hmm. uh but i can definitely see conceptually like that just goes back to the reason why astronomically the fifth should signify children just independently is because if the fourth house represents your um family and your family basically your parents um and that's the angle and then the fifth house is the house that come it's the succeedant house that mm-hmm. follows after the fourth mm-hmm. then the fifth house should signify that which follows after uh, the fourth house in terms of which would then mean your lineage. Right. Mm-hmm. That's which, a nice way to think about it. Yeah. And I think that's how way back in like the first century in the Asclepius, what I call the Asclepius text, that how they ended up assigning the fifth house to children in the first place is based on that conceptual premise. But I could see taking that premise and then applying it uh, to other things uh, just symbolically. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, like you have your foundation and what do you create from that? Mm. Right. Which well, is, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say the the quick connection there too with fortune and and fertility or children. Up until very recently, with modern science, you were either blessed with a lot of children or not. There mm. were, you know, it was a, something that was the luck of the draw. Almost, you either were able to easily have a bunch of kids and they survived childhood because back in the day that was not something that happened a lot. Mm-hmm. So I think that you can sort of see some of those um concepts, you know, would have been considered a great blessing for your home, your fourth house to be filled with children. Mm. Yeah, right. then you have more workers to go in your field or farm your land or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's what I want to have children for. <laughs> I mean, it's not what we do today. I don't know. <laughs> well, since we moved down to the country, you know, we could use some uh, some, some hard workers. work right. yeah. to clear the brush or something. Yeah, I, I know that sounds crazy to us today, but it doesn't sound crazy. Yeah, or you had to marry them off to form alliances and right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to that, because I think this is really important, worth not dwelling on a lot, but just mentioning and passing really quickly. But that idea of coming to the topic of children by saying that the fifth house should be that which follows after the f- the fourth, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's an underlying conceptual principle where you can see then why. They got to the idea that children should be assigned the fifth, but also if you can if you can do that, if you can go back to the original conceptual principles, then you can find other significations that could be associated with certain houses, mm-hmm. and that's kind of important in modern times where sometimes we do have new dynamics or new experiences that maybe didn't exist two thousand years ago, but symbolically 
you might still be able to assign to a house as long as you understand the underlying conceptual structure mm -hmm. that it was based on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's important to talk about because there's always this tension between, on the one hand, sticking with the tr the inherited tradition and like this system that's been passed on for two thousand years that works pretty well, mm. but also occasionally updating it or adding to it or revising it in different ways. Um, you know, very carefully and deliberately right, and with, with some in reverence. A, in accord with yeah. the principles. Right. Right. Um, it's you can get reasonably far by memorizing a list of the correct topics, mm -hmm. but um understanding why yes. those topics are associated with it. And you know, um there there are not there's not very much that's genuinely new under the sun, but for example, web what is where is my website? Yes, right. Like there, there's not a good precedent for that. It will not no. be in Valens. Yeah, yeah. But if you understand the essence of what a website does and what the different houses are, then you can connect. Yeah, the by the by, by the principles is what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Or like, what is a, what does it look like if a person has a job as like a a therapist? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They work like one on one, having dialogues with other people, and, yeah, and you'll see with that certain show types up. of subject matter. Yeah. yeah, you'll see that show up in like the seventh house, or what does a um, somebody that does accounting, what does that look like, or what house might that show up in? Mm -hmm. Well, there, there've been accountants for a long time. Yeah, yeah I was like I they right. would have had them. Sure, <laughs> um, but I believe there. Yes, there was a, a specific uh, subgenre of scribe. Right. Okay. Yes. Uh, I always I see it show up surprisingly in the eighth house a lot. Oh yeah, accountancy like is totally eighth house. Other people's money. Yeah, and their job is often to, yeah, it's a hundred percent eighth house. And okay. sometimes you see therapists in the eighth house too. Mm. Yep. Okay. Yeah, because um, that's dealing with the. Yeah, I see. Um, I actually see a, a malefic in the eighth, ruling the tenth with like some nice caring stuff connected yes. to it, but it's literally dealing with other people's problems yes. for a living. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the funny thing with like being a therapist, it is a seventh house style relationship, the one-on-one -on -one type of thing. The material that you're dealing with is eighth housey in nature. Mm. Yeah, and it's yeah. generally malefic. It, of course, because we're not we're talking about disorders or things that anyway we're getting into the anyway, eighth house. I mean, now. That's, that's video gonna, part two. It'll tie us actually into the sixth house because we're going to come headlong. Into oh yeah, that straight. Of, of course, so we could go. From good fortune to bad fortune. Yeah, exactly. So I guess one last thing. So as you said earlier, this is the first house that's like blatantly good. good right. Yeah. And it is configured uh, by trying to the ascendant. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really important. our happiest yeah. aspect. The most yes. positive aspect. And it's one of the most positive houses. It's the succedent house. Not quite as powerful as an angle, but it has that very positive, very strong uh, tie into the first house um, through the trine. Yeah, and that's um, I think the in all of astrology, uh, it's very important to learn to differentiate powerful from favorable. Mm -hmm. yes. Sometimes you get both. Sometimes you get one, but not another. The fifth is not as powerful as the fourth, but it is more favorable. Favorable. Yeah, because yeah. we'll start to run into some interesting like power versus favorability or ease dynamics when we get to like the seventh house, which yeah. is opposite to is an angle but is opposite to the first house or the 10th house which is a, a very powerful angle but has the superior square over the first house mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah well and i think the succeeding thing just to add this in the 11th and 5th are often separated and treated differently to the 2nd and the 8th and that they are in the top half in terms of houses that are 
more favorable. Right. Whereas the second and eighth, even though they are secedent, then they're usually in the bottom half in terms of the they, and the niceness or likability. Yeah, because they don't have an aspect to the first don't, house. Exactly, yeah. Or a major aspect, which is a sextile, uh, square, trine, opposition, or conjunction. Yeah. Yeah. What were you going to say? Oh, no, I'm good. Okay. okay. All right. Any other fifth house stuff that cover it all? I think we got a lot just, in there. Yeah. I um, mean, we can always throw in examples, but we've covered the topics. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, then let's yeah. move on to what should be our final house, unless you guys want to keep going for the rest of the night. Huh. Or, yeah. <laughs> is, you have to feed us. <laughs> it is 10.30 at night, and I haven't fed Austin we and started, Kelly all day. We started at five. <laughs> okay. We, we've obviously had some breaks and stuff in between, but. All right. Uh, last it's house. It's good. Yeah. We're having fun. We are having a good time. So well, we're getting all these stories in. The sixth house uh, is traditionally in ancient astrology and Hellenistic astrology is known as the place of bad fortune, which con <laughs> contrasts with the fifth house, which is the place of good fortune. The sixth house is said to be the house where Mars rejoices or has its joy. Uh, it's a cadent house, so we're back to a cadent house. Uh, like the third house, which is also cadent, except the di big difference is that this cadent house does not have an aspect, a major aspect mm -hmm. to the ascendant, and therefore it's not just cadent, which is weaker in terms of power and prominence, but also uh, that lack of aspect indicates a lack of support or um, positive things with relation to the first house entity, which in natal astrology is the native. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, the sixth house is associated with things like illness, injuries, work, and subordinates. And I've updated like some of those a little bit in terms of uh, phraseology in modern times, because there's at least a couple of those that um, are a little bit different if you read them in like a first century text, text compared to the way that they've either been adapted to modern society or the way where occasionally astrologers will use sort of like euphemisms for certain things to soften it a little bit. But yeah, these are really great words that are relevant. I think you were saying this before, Austin, relevant to our experiences today. Yeah, because like traditionally in ancient first century Greco Roman society, the sixth house was said to be one of the significations was slaves. Mm. So that's obviously not relevant now in the like early 21st century for the most part. Uh, however, the sixth house does still continue to be relevant in a way, just in a slightly different way for the term I use is subordinates. Mm. Like if you're somebody that owns a business, those who work under you who are sort of subordinate to you often do show up in the sixth house. Mm -hmm. do you I, have I any believe the polite term is employee. Yeah. <laughs> Employee. Oh, yeah, employees. Okay, staff. not not, yeah. sub, not subordinates. So you don't use subordinate for. Um, I mean, I would usually say employee. I, I would say staff, and I think that applies in both a professional and a personal situation. In terms of if you have a business and you have staff, or you know, some people when they run their home have a gardener or a cleaner or what have you, and I think they would be sixth house. Yeah, absolutely. Employees. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's way better. I part of the reason I use subordinate is because I think that's also how they got to assigning um, animals and pets to the sixth house. Mm -hmm. Yes, because it's like this: if the seventh house is, if the first house is you, the seventh house is the other, or like partnership, the person that you are on a sort of equal footing with. Mm -hmm. The sixth, which is below and declining from the the seventh, is 
those who are you're almost you're in some sort of partnership with, but are in a role that is subordinate to you that is not necessarily there is a on power an dynamic footing. where these people, if there was a hierarchy or an organization chart, you would be at a higher up place, sure, than than mm -hmm. the the individuals represented by that. I think is yeah. how I would describe it. Sure. Yeah. All right. So employees, how does that how does that come up? What does that actually mean? Well, um, if you have staff, like I, I know people who own businesses who have staff, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, some of them have unfortunate six thousand, and they have crazy staffing problems. A horrible time trying to get people to stay or people to do a good job. Yeah, or right. people are always bringing drama into the yeah. office. Um, like if you, yeah, if you hire people to do things. Um, then your sixth house becomes much more relevant in in terms of these significations. Yeah, yeah. And if you have a good a good sixth house, then you might be able to find someone be, who is really talented or fits exactly what you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. It'll be that'll be much easier for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes one of the things that's funny that comes up is even though some of the placements in a chart can indicate ongoing or recurring themes in a person's life, sometimes certain placements can indicate. Events that are like one-time events, a one or, and done. Yeah, just like a one-time, but a major event in the person's life that somehow comes to define it in some way. That so, if somebody wrote a biography about their your life, they would like mention this episode where this one thing happened that was an important or pivotal turning point. Mm. So, let's say like a sixth house matter where um, the sixth house got activated, but it was really bad. And, and let's say you were you owned a business, but you hired somebody and they did something really terrible. And it caused your entire business to go under, or something like that, due to a you know an employee. Uh, versus, let's say uh, another situation where you hired this one person, and that one person invented this new product that caused your business to take off and suddenly mm. become wildly successful, which never would have happened if you hadn't hired that one person. Yeah. Uh, so they they can be like one time situations, but they can really change the course of your life in some instances. And it's important to keep that in mind because I think sometimes people, when they're going through the houses and they're trying to think about whether that matches with their life, can get distracted by saying, well, this isn't a continual thing. I've only just had this one event, but um, that's not something that always occurs all the time in my life. Yeah. As far as what is most consistently relevant with the sixth, health. I was going to say, yeah, we have that's, and that's the whole idea, at least a big part of how I understand it is the, the bad fortune is that. It is considered bad fortune if you have a health condition or if you have a health problem and you know depending on your access to health services and health providers you can manage or even overcome but it, depending on the condition it may not be an overcomable condition it may be something that you live with. Yeah. yeah. And we and we talked about this a little bit already with the first house which represents both the body and physical constitution, as well as the mind or the character, mm. uh, but it really comes up in the sixth house because traditionally they would really talk about like illness as well as injury as being major sixth house topics. Uh, but definitely in the modern times, in the twentieth and twenty first century, the scope of the sixth house has been expanded not just to talk about things that are negative, but also ways in which health can be maintained or well, in which like illnesses or injuries can be treated in, in constructive ways. Yeah, but it's always um, the positive sixth house stuff is a response to, to negative to things. Negative. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I've got weak lungs. I should do lung exercises, yes, right? Or like, oh, I've got bad knees. I should make sure to like, you know, to, to loosen up my thighs. knees before yeah. I do stuff. Right. I see the the sixth as 
Uh, the six can also be very bad for money. Um, it's those, and you, you get six house transit, your faucet breaks, the cars, whatever. It's those things which eat away at the the physical stuff in your the life. Stability. It's to a certain degree, it's a little bit of a place of entropy um, where it's like, if you don't take care of your body, it's going to yeah. fall. Actually, it's going to fall apart anyway. It is going to fall apart faster. Foster, yeah. But like, if you don't take care of your, if you don't pay your bills on time, they're going to shut your lights off. Yeah. And so this is the Mars joy there. Um, the, the, in many ways, the best solution to the constant threat of entropy is to just take care of it. Like yes. do, you know, do, do a thing, you do your yoga, you know, you make sure that, um, you pay the bills on time, you repair that step so you don't fall down it and, you know, and crack your skull. Um, the sixth house stuff requires a response in order to keep it, in order to keep the, the natural entropy of material being from becoming a negative event. Mm. Um, and for, for health in, I think a, a useful simplification that's uh, not an oversimplification is the first house is kind of like your hit points. And then the sixth house is how much damage you're taking yeah. uh, or your, your relative to what degree you have immunized or addressed the factors um, which would attack you and do damage. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. And I think that's the key is that when one thing that confuses students is the first house seems to be about the body and somehow kind of connected to health, but so is the sixth. It is the the problem or the what is hurting the body, if you like, is going to come out of the sixth house in some way, usually speaking. Sure. Yeah. And so if you have a planet that maybe it does a bunch of great stuff for you, but it also rules the sixth, mm. um, that can that when that planet gets stimulated by transit or activated by Time Lord, whatever, it it'll it'll cause a flare up of whatever your flare ups look like. Yeah. And so the the ruler of the sixth takes on the disease or injury delivery responsibilities. It might be Venus and it might be in a beautiful position and it's also delivering, you know, flowers and art and good times, but it's got that job because it rules the sixth It's also house. causing a problem with sugar metabolism or diabetes or mm -hmm. something along yeah, those lines because perfect. both Venus and Jupiter, even though they are benefics, if they are connected to the sixth house, can still cause a problem in mm -hmm. your body. It may not be, you know, the Mars problem, which can be like an accident or a surgery or what have you, but yeah, Venus and Jupiter can still interfere with the uh, good functioning of the physical. Yeah. And any planet that rules the sixth Absolutely. takes that on. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think there's a tendency for the sixth house to be more bodily type um, issues in terms of injuries or illnesses, whereas uh, the twelfth house has some connection as well, but can sometimes tend to be more uh, can also be more like afflictions of the the mind, like they call yeah, it. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. At a really simple level, you can just say. If you're looking for mental health, look at the 12th first. And then if you're looking for challenges to the mental health, 12th, challenges to the physical health, 6th. Yeah. Um, and there's more to it than that, but that's not a bad starting place. I also, I do um, concrete challenges or problems with the six it's visible problems mm. it, that's actually, I think that's what's on my handout is yeah. visible problems. Yeah. like. Like oh, in the material. Kind yeah, you're of like scene. oh, my back hurts. Yeah, right. Whereas the twelfth is like, I'm just not happy. Yeah, mm. or I'm not sleeping well, and I'm just not sure why. Yeah, there's more of an abstract, hard to pin down. Or the six is like, yeah, I cut my hand making, or I burn my hand oh, making, hand making pizza. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, and part of the reason I think for that is that the sixth is still below the horizon in that mm-hmm. bottom half of the chart, which is more of the lunar hemisphere where the moon, you know, has its joy in the third mm. and the nocturnal planets. Because that was something we didn't even mention at all. That the is joy the sex is, orientation. Yeah. That yeah. the planetary joys, the nighttime or nocturnal planets, all have their joys um, in the bottom half of the chart because yeah. that's under the Earth. Uh, so the moon in the third, Venus in the fifth, and Mars in the sixth, and yeah. then the daytime or diurnal planets have their joys up in the top half of the chart. In the day. In the sun to the ninth, Jupiter to the eleventh, and Saturn to the twelfth. Uh, but I think this sets up a basic uh, mind-body duality where uh, mind and spirit tend to be in the top half and body tends to be in the bottom half. And I think that's why originally in the very first sort of system of significations why they assigned both body and mind to the first house because with whole sign houses part of it is above the horizon and part of it is below so it's really a little bit of both and that's what yes. the body and that's what you are in some ways well yeah, yeah. In, in a way that i think will be increasingly clear in part 2 yes um the significations of the first six houses are all embodied. Yes, they're all in that right, like tangible material. Neighbors and having stuff and having yeah, the a physical house that you live in and making stuff and having kids. Yeah, straight and out of your body. Having yeah. your back hurt. Like those are all very embodied experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh we talked about illness. Sometimes injury can come up, and that can be like an acute injury. Like yeah, if- and the need for surgeries and things can come up with sixth house as well. Sure. Yeah. And so it's worth contrasting um, the sixth and injury and ill health with the eighth, because the eighth is the house of death. Yes. Right. Um, and so the sixth tends to be systemic weaknesses, mm-hmm. accidents, but. Um, generally, the sixth by itself won't kill you. No, it's the it can, shit you got to deal with, but you can usually recover from it. Yeah, it can make you on. sick, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the the eighth, the eighth is the house of death, right? Yeah. So, you know, feeling bad and you know having a busted, uh, I don't know, shoulder is not the same thing as death. No. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's not the same as like the cessation of life, which is the eighth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So other types of injuries, though, just to make sure we're clear, things like um, I don't know, again, like a car accident or something, and injuring yeah. your back, or uh, going skiing and like you know going hitting a tree or something like that. Yeah, like sudden acute injuries, uh, like breaking a bone or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking about my perfections and when I've broken bones. <laughs> yeah, I, my last sixth house perfection year, I had some trepidation over, but I ended up um, starting going to the gym. Kind of actually for the first time since like high school, but yeah. I it was more of a productive like it didn't happen because I was trying to go out of my way to do it in terms of like oh it's sixth house so I better focus on that it was more <laughs> just like it was time to start yeah. getting getting older I need to start like maintaining my body and like uh, warding off some of those long term difficulties if I'm not taking care of my health mm-hmm. yeah and that's the that's the proactive Mars in its joy yeah side the of prevention the is better than the cure. Like, if you have, you know, like the, a lot of some, like some, a lot of these problems, even if, you know, like there are chronic conditions that don't have a quick answer or may not even have an answer, but there's still like, what do you do to minimize the difficulties? Yes. Um, like, you know, if you think about like getting sick, 
right? There's the like treating the cold or the flu once you have it. But then it's like, why did you get sick? You're like, well, I was kind of eating like shit and drinking too much. Like there's the like keeping the immune system strong is both a literal thing that's concerned with proactive sixth house stuff um, as well as a good metaphor for the other difficulties. If we're talking about the, because the six, if the six is related in any way with financial indicators, it can be sickness of, mm. you know, uh, uh, of one's financial health, which is one's body on a different level. Um, and, you know, like paying your bills on time, keeping books, et cetera, et cetera, as a way to like keep that healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And the only other thing, we've talked a lot about the health and the illness, but it it may not just be you being unwell if you have some strong sixth house indications in your chart. It may be that you work in a health or a medical related field. I was field. just yeah. going to say that. That's yeah. like my favorite client you, chart you example, example that I use in my book. book. Yeah. It's like it's, a, it's the ruler of the first and the tenth, and it's placed in the sixth, and it's like a benefic, and it's also bonafide it's like the extremely the most well-placed planet in the sixth ruling both career and the ascendant and the person is a a doctor that focuses on like patient care and things like that so they're working in a context of like people who are sick but it's not otherwise primarily manifesting as as the native being sick themselves it's them helping and acting as the benefic well you know being really interested in sickness and therefore health yes Yeah, so th- th- that's I think an important thing to note. Yeah, people who work in the medical or the health field, right, in some capacity. Yeah, so yeah. that can definitely come up when you're talking about the sixth house, and then the other more positive side of the sixth house we have to talk about that's become more prominent, I think, in modern times. But I think is definitely relevant is the idea of the sixth house having to do with with work. Yes. Uh, is that something you guys subscribe to? Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's a little bit to do with the Mars piece of like just do something. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of the distinction as it was first explained to me is like Mars is sort of, not Mars, sorry, the sixth house is like what we have to do, you know, all day, every day kind of thing. It's almost like what you need to do that can potentially feed the career, the tenth. I think of uh, the old Chris Rock bit about jobs and careers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's uh, a good- Career being tenth um, yeah. and just like labor, a, a job being the sixth. Yeah. Where it's like, he's like, you know, not everybody has a career. That's very but true. Like everybody's got to work. Everybody's got a job of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. And this does set up kind of a triad or a tri- triangle, which is one of the things I do think it's kind of, although it's overemphasized, it's still useful in modern astrology where they will talk about the second house being your income, the sixth house being work, and the 10th house being career. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the interaction between those three houses or their rulers, um, all relating to the overall picture, or all being relevant in terms of. If you're talking about a person's um, career in general, yeah, and that I think is um, something that may be worth being really clear for people too is that when we say when you know it is said that the sixth house is one of the more difficult houses or problematic houses, that is from the perspective or the point of view of the first house in the chart. But a planet in the sixth house will be making some kind of triangle to the tenth and could potentially be in aspect to the midheaven degree itself. Yeah, which is like, well, what do I do with this planet? Just put, take it to your job or use it in your work in some capacity and you can get um, something out of that planet that otherwise might look bad or like it's in a bad place, if that well, makes sense. Well, and that's the primary instances that I see where a person is able to have a sixth house planet that works out relatively well is if yeah. it is mitigated by being in the sixth but being 
having a close aspect within three degrees to the degree of the midheaven or yeah. to a planet that's in the tenth house. Mm. Um, that's something that's mentioned in like some of the Hellenistic texts, like Paulus, I think Paulus Alexandrinus in yeah. the fourth or fifth century that I've seen consistently work over and over again in practice. That when a planet's in a difficult house, as long as it's configured to an angle or an angular planet. You'll tend to see, even though there may still be problems, a more positive manifestation overall than there might be otherwise. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it'll put it to good use. It, it mm. is it, exactly; it's put to good use. But yeah. um, just back to general cadency, planets in the sixth have to deal with a bunch of shit. I was going to say, yeah, you're probably like, oh, my back hurts, or I got to do all this to keep my back from hurting. I'm going to do all that before I actually even start work. Yeah, and then you know I got to go, or you know, like. Going like I don't know. I think of you know when I I worked at a fast food restaurant when I was a teenager. Like I'd put all that work in, and it's yeah. not like I was building a career. No, um, that's something you get with cadence seasons where you spend energy just to maintain neutral. Yeah, um, and so that you know you did all that work, and you have none of the energy left over, and you're just you just continue to uh, be able to have food and shelter. Yeah, you're kind of treading water. In that and sense, so, yeah. yeah, without I without, think that's one of the primary signification or underlying conceptual meanings of cadent houses is dissipation of energy. Yeah, and I'm yeah, I'm trying to emphasize that. Mm -hmm. Well, and because yeah, it, you know, they're just planets in 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 the sixth, for example. They just get it's tiring to be in the sixth. It's very tiring. There's a lot to do. Well, and you see that with planets transiting through the six, is that people all of a sudden are putting out more effort in terms of their everyday life. They might be asked to work on another project at work or there's they help there's something going on with their family or with children or something and their daily kind of you know tasks or responsibilities is just more but you don't get the reward for it yeah it's like do this extra work but nobody's giving you more money or benefits or anything well, you've just got to do the like extra being sick yeah um, you know, if if it's more than just um, a flu, right? If there's a chronic yeah. condition, you have to like do all this research and you see these different doctors and you try you this. You take the that. medication. And it's or a the lot supplement. of work to try to just get back up to neutral. Yeah. Mm. Right. Your reward is not being sick. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so we've covered illness, injury, work, subordinates, or employees. Like even though it's a weird signification, I do think pets occasionally oh, yeah. do come oh, yeah. up pets in the sixth house. Oh, yeah, yeah, because we didn't have, say them. Not, yeah, that's not controversial. Not controversial. No. Okay. I don't think I've, so. I've seen it. Yeah. Repeatedly. Okay. When people have issues with their pets, when they get pets, yep. when they have pets that are going to die, when pets are like super important in the person's life. A hundred percent. When you're, when everyone says your cats live at the kitty cat Hilton. <laughs> I have a there's I have a funny example about that of like yeah. this millionaire or like billionaire. Eris, who had like a dog, and she would like feed the dog. She had the ruler of the sixth and the second, yeah. And she would just like shower the dog with like um, valuable goods and dress it with like gold chains or gold silk. And the and, like, dog doesn't care. Yeah, well, I mean, it did because when she died, Saturn went over the ruler of the sixth, and um, in the paper it said that the dog was put on went from eating caviar each day to being put on a diet yeah. of like eating alpo or something like yeah. like dog food <laughs> regular dog food and that was literally so that was a funny but that might illustrate a broader point weirdly even though you don't think it should which is um, that was a Saturn transit over the ruler of her sixth house at the time and it was describing an experience that this other entity in her life was having, which was yes. the dog, yes. was experiencing that. And even though that's a weird example, you will see that happen sometimes where sometimes yeah. a transit 
in your chart over a house or over the ruler of a house will describe something that's happening in the life of somebody around you but may not necessarily be affecting your life directly, but it is affecting theirs and it's being reflected for some weird reason in their chart. Yeah. Like the by association. Yeah. But no, pets for sure. Okay. Not controversial. I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, we've been um we've been talking about getting another cat um since Jupiter's been in my sixth. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and when I've had Jupiter transit through my sixth, like the cats are all going to the vet and having all these very costly things done. Mm. And Jupiter's there normally, so we usually do whatever they need. <laughs> they get very spoiled. All right. A lot of energy. Uh, yeah. Is that it for the sixth house? Yeah. Austin will report we... back if he gets You know what's funny cat. is since we started talking about the sixth, my back has started hurting. Yeah. <laughs> like invoking it. I think I've just kept you guys up too late tonight and you're starting to fall apart. So maybe it's well, time. Well, we're to... aging now. You know that. We're not spring chickens. Yeah. Well, I'm still <laughs> quite young in my you, mid 30s. You are. Uh, you're much younger than us. Right. <laughs> Old fuddy duddies over here. <laughs> uh, all right. I think that's it, guys, in terms of this. This is part one of our two part series on the significations of the 12 houses. We made it through houses. One through six. Mm -hmm. so, Plus all the conceptual. Yeah, we got all the conceptual stuff out of the way, which took more time. So part two will be a little bit faster, mm -hmm. although we get to some interesting houses. There's in some the good houses, half. yeah. 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 Uh, so still plenty to go through. Um, so I did want to mention plug really quickly because all of us teach stuff on this. Like we're all doing this off the top of, top of our heads because we've been teaching it and doing consultations and classes and lectures on all of this for, for years and years now. Uh, Kelly, you have do you have classes and like lectures and stuff on the houses? Yeah, I have uh, my beginner, my practical beginner astrology course, which is a six part training, goes into the houses, and mm. I've also recently did a webinar called Rulership of the Houses for Beginners. So if anybody is struggling to get their head around the whole, what is this ruler of a house business and how does that factor in? I've got a webinar, and they're just all on my website, Kelly'sAstrology.com. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Austin, what about you? Yeah, uh, houses is one of the modules in my year one program, and the set of recordings of me doing houses is also available as an independently purchase purchasable module. Okay, Excellent. and what's your website? My website is austincopic.com. Brilliant. Uh, and I, of course, wrote a book, Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune. Uh, and when I say available in fine bookstores everywhere, I just mean go to Amazon and buy it. I was going to say, you just mean Amazon. Yeah, right? basically Amazon. Uh, it's like six, <clears throat> 700 pages, and it has a whole section on the origins of the significations of the houses, planets in houses, the rulers of houses. And it's the a very good ascendant. section, actually, the rulers of the houses. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. I have a bunch of delineations from Artorias that show you the, the earliest all the way from the 7th century delineations of what it means for the ruler of one house to be in another house from literally the earliest source that survives on that. So that chapter alone is very useful for this topic. And then mm -hmm. I also teach an online course on Hellenistic astrology where I have multi-hour lectures that go through and show hundreds of example charts that I've found of different permutations of the ruler of like the 7th house and the 10th, and mm -hmm. here's a client chart with that, or here's a celebrity example with that, and so on and so forth. Because that's the thing with the, with the 12 houses is uh, once you have a good grasp of them, when you start playing around with the rulers of the houses, mm -hmm. like that's where astrology just gets so magical and so unique and personal because right. you can, of course, assess that you could just, but you can take the signs out and just look at how the topics in life get connected based on where the rulers of the houses are. 
Yeah. And mm-hmm. that that is like a whole piece in and of itself that has only been discussed in the last maybe 15 or 20 years as the traditional revival has happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that's very important. And uh, yeah, you can find out more information about my Hellenistic Astrology course at courses.theastrologyschool.com. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, let's go get some some food somewhere, and then we'll be back tomorrow to do part two. Yes. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Bye. Awesome. Thanks for all the listeners. Thanks to all the patrons who support us through our page on Patreon. And uh, thanks for listening to this episode. So we'll see you again next time. Thanks to the patrons and sponsors who helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on Patreon.com, including patrons Christine Stone and Nate Craddock, as well as the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs at honeycomb.co, and also the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting an astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. And you can find out more information about that at esar2020.org and the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening in Seattle, May 21st through 25th, 2020, and you can find out more information about that at norwac.net. For more information about how to sign up to become a patron of the podcast, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.